If you're a Disney Plus subscriber and you're watching The Mandalorian, Jack and I have a podcast for you. Every week, we'll discuss the latest episode of The Mandalorian and talk about other great content and maybe some not so great content on Disney Plus as well. As two lifelong Star Wars fans, we have a ton of fun geeking out over all the little details of the show, and we want you to join us every Monday. So search for Disney Plus Reviews. That's Disney P-L-U-S Reviews. Hey, Phil, how about that, Baby Yoda? Baby Yoda says, What's the podcast? At Sif Pop. We're your movie friends. And our friends really friends? If you don't know them, so grab a popcorn. And head over to our row. So we can chat movies. Like friends do. There's always room for more movie friends. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the writer's room. Hello and welcome to Sif Pop Writer's Room. I'm your host, Aaron, but not that Aaron, of course. And today I am joined uh, by two Sif Pop Writers this week. We got Shade Kanto. How's it going, everyone? And Heath Lynch. Hey, how you doing? Oh, it's, uh, it's a good day. Uh, it's a very good day. Um, just because I get to talk about 007 movies with you guys, you know? Um, not not yeah. so much a good day for the Bears, yeah. but um, we'll see. That maybe maybe that line didn't age well. I don't know. It's currently halftime. So, um, Anyway, uh, we write for SipPop.com. We provide movie reviews, best ever challenges, other interesting movie-related articles. Um, lots of good stuff on there on the site. Um, he's had a couple reviews come up recently, a couple, couple upcoming ones as well. Shane is always like three or four reviews a week because as every time he's brought up, Shane's a madman. And uh, <laughs> uh, as, as always, the, uh, the uh, Buried Treasure um, monthly yes. stuff that's been, that's been really interesting to read. So uh, so we do uh, all that all that good stuff at SifPop.com, so make sure you check out the website. You can check out all that. Uh, read all that. It's all, it's all there. Uh, on today's show, we're going to talk about uh, two coming attractions uh, because now everything is coming out. Uh, that was supposed to come out last year, and all the things that were always supposed to come out this year that are coming out. Uh, we'll give our thoughts on uh, Venom 2 and Many Saints of Newark, or Venom Let There Be Carnage, just shorthand. Um, who cares? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Let's not uh, give away the... <laughs> and when we finally when we finally get done talking about those two, uh, we will move on to the uh, the main topic, which is because No Time to Die is coming out in about a week in the state's um, we'll be talking about the Daniel Craig Bond films up to this point. So Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and Spectre. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll explore the B-plot this week. I thought this would be fun, uh, given that each Bond film features a new artist. I thought, who was some artist you would like to see do, uh, a, do a Bond theme? Um, because Billie Eilish was kind of a way out of left field choice that I was like, yeah, but I'm here for it. And uh, so I, I kind of want to know who are some of those other people that we'd really like to see. Uh, and then we'll do a spinoff and wrap up, of course. But first, let's get a chance to know our writers this week. Um, Heath, we'll start with you since you're new. Uh, what, okay. Remind us, what's your favorite? Well, not remind us because you haven't got a chance to tell us. What's your favorite movie of all time? And really, like, titles are cool. But, like, what makes that movie beyond excellent for you? Yeah, sure. Uh, my favorite movie of all time is Saving Private Ryan. It mm-hmm. has been for... Probably 20 plus years now. It, anytime something I'm like, oh, this movie looks cool. Might dethrone it. Nope. Doesn't come close. Uh, I absolutely love it. Uh, I think it is the ultimate war film. Mm-hmm. I don't say that from an action bravado sense, although I'm sure you could extrapolate American exceptionalism from the film. It's definitely <laughs> there. Steven Spielberg loves to do that. Um, but I love it in the ways that it challenges our preconceptions, or maybe not everyone's preconceptions, but some of us on war and what war is, the true tolls of it. 
Uh, I think the theme work surrounding the idea of exchanges is prevalent throughout the whole film, whether that's the exchanges of life is this one, the most prominent being is this one person's life worth a squad of other people's lives. Mm. Uh, But throughout the film, there's a whole bunch of resonant ideas of, is it worth saving one person because this family lost three other sons or should we save this little girl and take her to the next village or this, that exchange not worth the potential casualties we'd take along the way. Is it worth it to assault this bunker even though we might take risks, but we could save other lives and other squads later on from this bunker machine gun hill. Uh, the idea of cost analysis and risk reward uh, as it pertains to war, as it therefore pertains to life, is very prevalent. And it makes the viewing experience way more intense than, oh my gosh, that guy just exploded. But the film also has that too. And uh, yeah. obviously it's most notable for its opening uh, act it's a uh, 20 to 30 minute visceral depiction of d-day and i will go on record that i think that is the greatest segment of film ever put to film that's uh, a good in argument terms, that's really in good terms argument. of its uh practical effects its visual effects the intense anger and passion and fear displayed in all the actors uh, the makeup work i mean the costuming i everything everything about the d-day scene is viscerally scary and horrifying but you can't not sit there in awe and just be like oh my gosh this is this is filmmaking uh so i i love saving private ryan i think it is a perfect film it is a masterpiece and it's incredible yeah that's one of those films i i see every now and then it gets like redistributed in the theaters and gosh i gotta go see that one in the theater one day Yep. Um, Shane, uh, remind us uh, what yours is. So I'm going to actually pick one of them. But (laughs) (laughs) my favorite film of all time is Lord of the Rings Return of the King. And why I love Lord of the Rings so much, I'm a huge fan of fantasy and science fiction. I feel like fantasy is probably the hardest type of genre to make work in live action. Because like if you ask somebody what are the greatest fantasy films of all time, probably most of them are actually going to be animated. It's really hard to bring this new world all together. And Peter Jackson did something quite amazing. And it basically does a little bit of everything well. And it's such a well-rounded film, the trilogy in general. And it's just awe-inspiring to watch. And the, the special effects still look better than a decent amount of films in 2021, which is kind of bad. To think about because like this is 20 something year old film but i get emotional i feel connected and where's that motion capture oscar because andy circus needs it and yeah. i'll give yeah. him all the acclaim now because sorry i'm not excited about your other <laughs> film coming out <laughs> but that's yeah for sure uh <laughs> so um uh, we'll kind of we'll kind of snake draft this then. Uh, so Shane, um, you were one of the like original Civ Pop writers. What was that process like getting involved? And what was like that thing that made you like decide? All right, I'm going to go ahead and do this. It's funny because I actually started reviewing film because I was going through a bad breakup and wanted to do something very me. And I love film. And I started doing written reviews on a Facebook page. And then I'm like, you know what? I like just talking about it into a camera a lot better. And then I had a YouTube channel for years and then I connected with Blake, which I feel like at least yeah. most of the 
first wave of people who came in. It's like, oh, I heard bad from Blake. And I connected with him. I was listening to his podcast. And he just messaged me on Instagram one time. He was just like, hey, I'm doing this thing. You interested? I'm like, sure, why not? I'm not the kind of person to say no to an opportunity. So I kind of just ran with it. And, you know, during COVID, when not a whole lot of people completely shifted gear into the virtual cinemas, I'm just like, is anybody reviewing this? Is anybody mm-hmm. reviewing this? And, you know, then I'm hooked. Now I'm here. Well, and look, here's the thing. like somebody's got to, right? Like, you know, there's tons of film coming out that we don't ever hear about. Yeah. Um, because, because they were made for like $5,000 in some back alley in, you know, like New Jersey or something, right? <laughs> uh, so like, next but, not $30,000. Don't know that's the cheapest cards. place to make a movie. But, <laughs> you know, I get what you mean. But yeah, I mean, and, Clerks was filmed in New Jersey, so there you well, go, at least Kevin Smith. New Jersey, I don't know. We got no, that's specifically Kevin what Smith. I was referencing. That he he just maxed out thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt yep. and made yep. Clerks there in you New go. Jersey. Yeah. And I think I think he's been able to pay off that credit card bill. Yeah, I yeah. think so. <laughs> Clerks three is like, if this is bad, I'm done, Kevin Smith. I'm sorry. <laughs> like I watch yeah. your '90s movies, but come on. But yeah, I it's it's a great thing to be a part of. And I feel like I've made so many friends through this too, which is awesome during COVID. And, you know, it's a fun time. You all should do stuff like that. If you like movies, yeah. find your place to talk about them. Yeah. And I love that Sip Pop is a place uh, that we can do that. So uh, that's maybe a good transition. Heath, uh, you're you're kind of in the new wave of writers. Um, kind of what was that uh, What was that spark? Because um, you don't have the typical SAR ad on Twitter um you saw nope. it elsewhere and but yes. like what was that thing like how'd you get involved um how, you know what was your sure. first exposure to Civ pop and like what made you decide to take that step um so for me i've always been incredibly passionate about film as pretty much as far back as i could remember uh i was always the guy in our friend group or even in my family that people would come to me for my opinion on movies. I didn't, I don't even know how it happened. It just naturally happened over time. Like, Oh, Heath seems to watch a lot of these and he seems to understand it better than most. Again, I, whatever, but that's how it happened. And I kind of like Shane, actually, it just, every once in a while, someone would ask on Facebook, Hey, what's your thoughts on this movie? Oh, and I'd write out a whole written review in 30 minutes without even realizing crap. I just, pooped out 2000 words on this movie that like five people are going to see, but (laughs) I loved doing that and it was exciting and it was fun. And so I wanted to just kind of be a part of a conversation. So I started searching out more podcasts and things to follow just because no, none of my friends personally were as invested in film as I was. And I just wanted to kind of have that conversation, even if it was me just listening to other people have that conversation. And uh, the way I got connected to Sift Pop was I was a big fan of CinemaSins started following the CinemaSins podcast. And in which case, at one point, Aaron, this guy named Aaron Dicer showed up on the CinemaSins podcast and learned that he himself was a film critic and he helped write with CinemaSins and found his channel and company Sif Pop through that, started listening to the Sif Pop podcast and just kind of one of many podcasts that I followed. Uh, but I found the opportunity through Letterboxd. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Letterboxd is a social media site dedicated strictly to movies. That's all it is. That's all they care about. You don't post in a timeline. You don't post your status. It's just, do you like movies? Cool. You can mark if you liked a movie or if you watched a movie, you can write a review, whatever. And uh, on there, uh, Sif Pop had an account and they posted, hey, we are 
looking for new writers. And I think I uh, reached out and Aaron, I think it was actually you uh, Mm -hmm. that I reached out to via email after finding that link. And uh, I remember you were like, oh yeah, we do these things called best ever challenges. Yeah, I I know. Very familiar. Follow the podcast. But then you were like, oh, do me a sample best ever challenge, right? Like one movie. And I misunderstood. So of course I wrote an entire best ever challenge. (laughs) You were not the only person to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wrote like 10 full things I, I i think you wanted like best con movies or something i don't remember which one we it was. we gave like three examples of recent bcs that we published so yeah um but uh yeah, yeah that's how i got into it is uh, i found the ad through letterbox after following sif pop after following cinemasins after following a lot of other movie podcasts and uh just again I, I love talking movies i wanted to be a part of the conversation and you know even if uh me watching one or two movies and writing these reviews can help other people enjoy movies that much more. It's uh, worth it to me. And I love the experience. It's fun. I love being part of the team. Sweet. Uh, well, that's a good transition then. Uh, but before we move on to actually talking about film, uh, actually talk about uh, some movies pretty in depth. Uh, I have uh, one question. Uh, it's, it's not movie related. It's just to get a chance to kind of round out um, our feelings for who you guys are. Um, either of you can go first, but what is something that you're looking forward to in the next five years? I guess I can go. Um, I'm getting married in May, so I'm excited Woo! about that. Congratulations. Yay! Getting things together. Just hoping things are better in May. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we can We can hope. <laughs> we can only hope. Uh, cool. What about you, Heath? Oh, uh, gosh. Uh, for me, I guess the thing I'm looking forward to is the determination on whether or not my wife and I will have another child. Uh, it's something that we want to do. It's just, you know, times are, t- times are challenging. COVID land is, is not the best. Uh, but uh, just coming to that conclusion and hopefully we'll be trying soon for uh, our third and final child. <laughs> Very nice. Wow. Like real personal responses too. We go. Thanks for sharing guys. Um, See, we care about other things besides movies. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, gosh i'm just excited for like i don't know um how about how about this white Sox playoff run or or this this upcoming blackhawks mine is like so so small in comparison (laughs) to add on there my hope is that the new york giants start a season not zero and two in the Mm. next five years because i think they have like eight in a row now Man, no, you're gonna, there we go. I don't think that I don't think that's gonna happen in five years. But uh, no, I'll, I'll change my answer to, again. It's still it's still pretty pretty shallow in comparison. But I'm really excited to see Seth Jones and Mark Andre Fleury starting for the Chicago Blackhawks this season. That's God. I mean, like two just legends in hockey right now. Yeah. Um, first season for the Hawks. That's uh, it's it's an exciting time to be a Blackhawks fan. Uh, and Jake McCabe too. He's a lot of he's super underrated. Um, on a hockey tangent, I'm hoping that me and my wife, we're going to try to go to the winter classic, uh, in Minnesota. So that's something that I'm, but again, we'll see if it pans out, but potentially yeah, looking yeah. forward to would love. Cause I went to the winter classic against the Blackhawks here in St. Louis a few years back. So I'd yeah, love to go to the other one. <laughs> oh, it was a great game though. Ah! <laughs> We've never won an outdoor game in history. <laughs> I want to, I want to go to a future, uh, field of dreams game. That was oh, yeah. a, that was that was amazing. 
I like I'm convinced that Major League Baseball staged that game because there's no way that it could be that dramatic just specifically for that game. And that was a perfect night of baseball. And I'm sure Aaron, you're especially happy. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'll I'll I think I'll get a chance to go before you guys do if I can afford it. Because <laughs> I only live go. like forty five minutes away. But yeah. uh, but still tickets are like four hundred and fifty dollars a pop. Like starting price, and you have to like enter your name and do a lottery to to even like be qualified to buy the t- man. It's insane. I get angry year, when I have to pay five dollars for a hot dog at a baseball game. Although, although I am sorry, I am sad that it's going to be like um, not uh, um, like the White Sox won't play next year, and that mm-hmm. makes me sad. Like I think I think it should be the White Sox play a different team on a rotating basis every year. I think that's the way it should be, but. Um, you know, it's I, like the movie. I agree and so. disagree. It is about the White Sox, but I think it would be fun just to get more teams involved. That yeah. any team that appeared in the movie could be a part of it. Like any any of the players that came out from the corn. Like I know at one point, yeah, there were Yankees and of course White mm-hmm. Sox, but there were Reds. And mm-hmm. that would be even more fitting because the the story is about the White Sox throwing the World Series to the Reds. So get the Reds in there. Uh, the Tigers, I believe, were shown in there. The Cardinals, I know, were shown in there. Uh, Red Sox. You could get a couple of teams in there that, especially from a business perspective, you know that money-wise, they're like, yeah, let's get Boston in there. And well, all and these it, bigger it also just makes sense because, like, you know, the White Sox are the geographically closest located team. Yeah. So. Um, yep. yep. I'm sure the Cubs will be in there at some point too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, well, anyway, listeners just... out there, they're like, we could have a sports podcast too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm game. Let's do it. Uh, pop sports sports podcast coming up soon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, cool. Well, let's talk about uh, a couple movies coming out this week. Some things that we're um, either excited or not excited to talk about. Uh, we've already kind of danced around Venom two for a little bit. So let's start with that. Venom, let there be carnage. Uh, this is coming out on uh, the first. Um, yeah, the poster still says the fifteenth, uh, but they bumped it up to the first, uh, <laughs> uh, which is this weekend. It's going to be a theatrical release only. They've been very specific in marketing that, and I feel like part of it is kind of beating you over the head, but also like I feel like you need to at this point, uh, at least for the while. But uh, Tom Hardy returns to the big screen as the lethal protector of Venom, one of Marvel's greatest and most complex characters. Directed by Andy Serkis, the film also stars Michelle Williams, Naomi Harris, Woody Harrelson, and the in the role of villain Cletus Cassidy slash Carnage, or as Shane told me to describe this movie, Red Noodle and Black Noodle. Blah, 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 blah. Um, so give credit <laughs> to Heath; he brought the noodle part. I was the blah, 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 part. So there we go. Teamwork. Yeah, it was Venom and Carnage. Blah, blah, blah. Black Noodle versus and Red then it was Red Noodle, Black Noodle, and, <laughs> um, and all that. So. Um, Let's see. Um, Shane, we'll start with you. Um, on our scale of our anticipation level, uh, again, t- your own free will go into this movie, not like AMC A-list or anything like that. And let's imagine for two seconds that COVID isn't a thing in the world. And God, that's a really nice, really nice world to live in right now. Um, uh, how soon do you think you would catch this? Again, no obligations for like having to write a review on it or whatever. Would you go opening weekend? Uh, wait for a discount night. Wait till you could rent it at home. Wait till it's on a streaming service you already pay for. Or are you just not interested in seeing this movie? So I will be seeing this either Friday night at a drive-in or some point in the theater on Saturday. But if my actual anticipation of this is 
non-facetiously not interested at all after watching the first Venom movie. And okay. for morbid curiosity, I would catch it on streaming at some point because I want to see how much of a train wreck it is. So it, so your your like official answer is, is not, not interested. interested. <laughs> yeah, but but you're you're going to see it and would eventually see it at some point. Yep. But still not but not because you want to see it. No. Nope. <laughs> All right, what about you, Heath? Same scale. Same. Same. Copy paste. <laughs> control C, control V. I I could care less about this movie. I hated the first one. I thought it was so bad. And I could not care any less about seeing Black Noodle versus Red Noodle. But simultaneously, <laughs> I am like Shane, where I just love seeing new movies, and especially superhero movies, and especially because they all tie into another, one another these days, and mm-hmm. I don't want something to be spoiled, I will probably still be seeing this opening weekend. Uh, but I, I'm not interested remotely. Yeah, I think there's a good chance I'm going to see this one this weekend as well. But uh, I'm going to land in the rent category, um, just rent it at home, because that's kind of like the right down the middle of the line. Like, mm-hmm. not necessarily like want to rush to see it, but not, ne- but also not necessarily like not interested in seeing it. Uh, I do like the first Venom movie, or maybe not like. I think it's okay. Um, it, mostly, I don't think it's a good movie by any means. Like, that's that's something I got to get out of the way. But I think that Tom Hardy is so fun in this role. Um, I yep. do want more Tom Hardy in this role. Um, so he's, he's the reason it's going to pull me back to this one. I, of course, I'm intrigued by Andy Serkis directing. This will be his second feature, right? After Mowgli. Well, um, so he had a film with Andrew Garfield in it, which was a historical drama that he directed. And I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I hear the same from Mowgli. Like it was fine. Um, and yeah, Mowgli was fine. It was so it's like, a movie. I, I'm intrigued by that aspect. Um, and I, like I said, I like, I like Tom Hardy in this role. Um, he's, You're he's the reason, breathe, by the way, he's the reason to yes. watch the first Venom. Um, and, and I think that he's the only reason to watch the first Venom in my opinion. Um, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, Cause the definitely Michelle Williams is not part of that. And, uh, um, definitely the, the riot character and, um, the, Poor the Riz Ahmed. Ahmed character, who's such an incredibly say, talented love, actor. I love Riz Ahmed. I think he is his performance in Sound of Metal was so amazing, yeah. and I love following his career and the things he's done so far. But like, I'm I'm not even gonna lie. The first time I I watched Venom, I fell asleep. Like yeah. it was just incredibly boring. It did not captivate me in the slightest. The CGI mess fest at nighttime for a final climactic battle was entirely incomprehensible and uninteresting to me. And the only thing I found entertaining was Tom Hardy. And even mm-hmm. the character and the writing I thought was stupid. <laughs> I know people love the like jump in the lobster tank and eat the lobster at the restaurant. No, I don't like that. But like that's it's dumb. I'm sorry, yeah. it's dumb. Now Tom Hardy makes it entertaining because he's that good, but <laughs> it's still dumb. And I just I couldn't stand that first movie. And I yeah, agree. I'm, I'm Tom like, Hardy's the any the only part that I find remotely attractive about it well in this movie this new one venom let there be carnage looks like they're actually taking the fan criticism to heart because this trailer looks like a lot of fun i mean like look it's still like it's going to be a mess and that i don't know how interested i am in the actual story to this movie um which is a shame because we're finally getting carnage on the screen and i'm just like okay but like if this were if the first venom were a better movie um then i'd be more interested in that uh because i think 
Carnage is an awesome comic book character. Finally, I'm excited to finally see him on the screen. Um, but like, I, I, I feel like um, uh, th- this trailer had a lot of fun moments in it too. Where there's there's a whole like, no, you cannot eat Mrs. Chen, and the um, the the end part where they're like, if you come out right now, I'll let you eat anybody. Like, it just looks like they're kind of embracing the things that I liked about the first one. I think this is going to be a worse movie, but I think I might have a, a more fun time with it. And um, really, like. I'm just expecting to have a good time. I'm not expecting to like this, um, but I am expecting to just be entertained by Tom Hardy for what? 97 minutes. Yeah. When I found out that it was going to be like a little over 90 minutes, which <clears throat> to be fair, the first Venom movie is only in 95 minutes without the credits. And also that into the spider verse scene that they threw on at the end of it. But like, it's, I hope that this, you know what? This, franchise reminds me of the early 2000s fantastic four it's like felt like it was written the same way it's just as silly and stupid and if this is just the two of them fighting each other for 90 minutes okay i will take that and i hope it's better than i think it's gonna be and is it sad that i'm kind of upset they got rid of uh, woody harrelson's terrible wig because <laughs> i kind of wanted to laugh at it <laughs> while watching the movie yeah that's fair guys you know what i think i might actually like be changing my anticipation level scale to to matinee uh or discount night Let let me explain why real quick um so the first venom movie as we talked about as a mess has three writers on it jeff pinker scott rosenberg and kelly marcel well kelly marcel's the only returning one but let's, let's take a look at Scott Rosenberg's track record. Well, Con Air and Gone in 60 Seconds and Jumanji the Next Level. All right. Really unimpressive stuff. I mean, like, look, I love Con Air and Gone I in love 60 all Seconds of them, for what they are. Good. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I hate Jumanji the Next Level. Um, but, you know, Con Air and Gone oh, in wait, 60 Seconds. The, yeah, the second one's bad. I like. I thought you meant Welcome to the Jungle. That one's fun. I, he, did have a story, he did have a screenplay credit on that one as well. But, like, let's be honest. Gone in 60 Seconds, Con Air, the screenplay is not the shining yeah. thing for that. And Jeff Pinkler, who... Uh, let's see. Um, aside from Jovanji, the next level also has screenplay credits for The Dark Tower and The Amazing Spider-Man Two, which I actually really like. Um, and produ- and was also a producer on The Dark Tower and a producer for Fringe. That's not nothing, but like that's both pretty unimpressive filmographies. But we got Kelly Marcel, who's relatively new, but she has Saving Mr. Banks, Venom, and Cruella, which was really good. Um, and so so kind of eliminating some of that multiple writers working on something. I'm more excited for this movie now after discovering that after the literal two seconds it took to IMDb this. Um, Honestly, Aaron, I thought you were going to say that you upped it because I brought up the wig thing, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to up it because I just feel like it, it, part of the, you, we can definitely argue that part of the reason the first movie is such a mess is because it feels all over the place. And that's because they have three screenplay writers because you would think that three screenplay writers would make a movie better because just people refining stuff. But I, I, the thing that I have come to notice is that the more screenplay writers you have, the more of a mess than who he is. Um, Generally. So. I, I will say, and if who knows how much influence there actually is behind the scenes, there's the asterisk to start the statement. But knowing that Sony's plans are to build out a Spider-Verse, 
with this being the second Venom, and we have already had announced Morbius, which is another Spider-Man villain mm-hmm. that's coming out, and Jared Leto starring, and, and the there's rumors um... circulating that this is all going to connect to Disney's MCU to some degree, in that Tom Holland may or may not, as Spider-Man, appear in these movies. So there's some corollary connection to some level. I I have more faith in Disney not wanting their story being messed up than I have in Sony just like messing something up, so to speak. Like I feel like if there's any kind of securities that Disney won't let that happen. They'd be like, no, we have too much invested. We have too many stories planned, too many characters that are intertwined and Spider-Man arguably being one of the faces of the company for over 60 years and one of the faces of their movies can't be messed with. And I have to imagine that there's some oversight in which they can be like, yeah, you can do this with them. You can't, it's your movie, Sony, you, you do your thing, but you can't do X, Y, or Z. And I, I, I would maybe argue against that. I think, I think you're, I think you're right on the Disney has more control over this, but I think that, I think that there is just somebody that is actually kind of guiding them and telling them that, I mean, I just looked at the producer list and there is no Kevin Feige credit. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you got to think that he that he and his team gave a lot of creative input to this, at least in terms yeah. of like, you're right, kind of setting boundaries, but also like guiding it in the right direction. And also, you know, you mentioned the upcoming Sonyverse. Let's also not forget Craven the Hunter coming out in a couple of years. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right. There's got to be a little bit more direction there. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I was talking about this with, I think, Dicer recently. But um, with with Venom two coming out and the you know the really um, they, look, I mean it's it's nowhere near confirmed. But I mean, there's no way that they don't at least hint at Spider Man existing, in, like Tom Holland mm-hmm. Spider Man existing in this. So it's um, very clear that they want to set up a sinic- sinister six with yes. You know, you've you've already established in the MCU we have Vulture and through the and multiverse Electro. we have Electro yeah. and we have Doc and Ock. Doc Ock. And we have all these characters, and now we also have Venom, and we have Craven, and like they can bring do back it Paul Giamatti is right now. Let's go. Yeah, it's very clear that they're putting the pieces on the chessboard, and you can see the pitch from the studio exec. Yeah. They're doing the elevator runs right now, but five years down the road, like it's happening. Yeah, so, for sure. Well, and like I just, I, I there's no way that this isn't going to connect into it, but there had to have been an agreement. With with uh, Disney re-upping the rights to get Spider Man, there had to have been an agreement that part of that is that is that Venom and Morbius and Craven could all be a part of the MCU now, yeah. um, and like officially be a part of that, not in just some sort of Venom doesn't necessarily negate anything. So why can't it exist in the, you know, more but more so like being a blatant we are tying to the MCU. But there's no way Disney would have allowed that. There's no way Feige would have allowed that without then we get creative input kind of like on that first, you know, Spider-Man homecoming movie. Um, You know, we get, we get creative input. We can share, we can share some characters. Here's a list of, I think if there had to have been clauses in there that Venom two becomes part of the MCU and that Disney has to get some sort of creative control. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, like, look, the more we're talking about this, the more I'm getting excited about it. Well, and all of that speaks to why I said I'm still probably seeing this opening weekend. Like, there's too much at stake in which something can be spoiled. 
So right. someone's going to say something online and I'm going to be pissed that I didn't get to see it in the theaters. I didn't get to experience that moment. And even though my interest level personally is not excited, I will say, again, I'm going to see it opening weekend. I will say that I think it has the right pieces in play to be mm-hmm. better than the first one with added talent like Woody Harrelson, with, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, Aaron, the singular uh, writing credit, with someone like Andy Circus directing, who I don't think you could ask for a better experienced individual in the reality of Hollywood that knows more about motion capture performances. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. you're going to have... Woody Harrelson and Tom Hardy being motion capture noodle boys for an hour and a half. Noodle boys. He's the one to direct it. So, so again, I, I, I hope and I feel that it will be better than the original, but I'm still not excited. But simultaneously, I'm still not going to miss it opening weekend. I'm going to make the title of this episode Noodle Boys. (laughs) Do it. Uh, (laughs) Shane, uh, it's been a while. I'm all out of thoughts on Venom 2. Do you have any any last thoughts, guys, before we move on? I just think this is going to be a big, dumb movie. And, like, I'm (laughs) going to sit there. I'm going to watch it. And I'm like, this is a big, dumb movie. But you know what? At least... You know, this seems like it's going to be such a weird, crazy, ridiculous movie. At least I'm not going to forget it. Because I've definitely watched movies where I'm just like, what the... Wait a minute. Five minutes later, what did I just watch? I don't even remember. But you know what? I'm definitely going to leave this movie being like, that was a ridiculous movie. And I'm going to want to talk about it afterwards. So, you know. What's very very interesting is this will probably stop Shang-Chi's rule at the box office because it looks like it just won another weekend over Dear Evan Hansen even. That's not super surprising. That 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 would have surprised me had you said that a week ago because I said I think that Dear Evan Hansen is going to be a sneaky underdog, but all the negative reviews have stopped <laughs> so many people from seeing it. Torpedo, uh, which is a shame because if you want to hear my full thoughts, you can you can go listen to Sip Pop Weekly. Um, but it's it's really not as bad as people are making it out to be. Um, I have a lot of thoughts, but we can yeah, talk about yeah. that later. Um. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to Many Saints in Newark then. Uh, this is a Sopranos prequel uh, coming out. This will be theaters and HBO Max, also October 1st, this, so this Friday. Um, <clears throat> Heath, we'll start with you this time since we did Shane last time. Same scale, opening weekend, discount night, rent, streaming, or just not interested uh, in seeing this movie. Uh, so because of the convenience that is HBO Max, it will be opening weekend for me, uh, probably opening night. Uh, without HBO Max, if this was just a theater-only world, it'd probably be a matinee, like opening week. I, uh, I've i never actually seen The Sopranos. I am one of the uninitiated that never took it in back in the day. Uh, and much like Aaron Dicer, the idea of going back to it now is daunting. Uh, yeah. That's a lot of material. That's a lot of hours to invest. And I have no doubt that I would enjoy it and that it would be of good quality. But setting a time to time to do that, is a task. So yeah. uh, with that said, uh, I do enjoy and I am intrigued by gangster mob movies, uh, learning more about the CD underbelly. I don't like movies so much that glorify that position, but it doesn't seem to me based off of the material I've read and the trailers I've seen that this is going to be one of those movies. And based off of what I've heard of the TV show, uh, I would think that that's the case. Again, haven't seen it though, so I don't know that for sure. But what I am intrigued by is the fact that this is a prequel 
maybe I do watch this movie now opening weekend and I'm excited for it. And I go and look into the TV show more. So I, I, I wanted to stipulate all that for those in the audience that I'm sure there are others like me who have never seen the show, but please know this is a prequel. So this might be a good entry point if anything. Yeah. I, um, I watched the first six episodes of Sopranos and I just kind of fell off the wagon, not because I was uninterested, um, but just because of the, the daunting task. And um, I, I mean, I do want to get back into it. I like, it's a good show um, from what I've seen. Um, I just, uh, I, I'm hoping that this movie kickstarts and uh, my like continuation of the Sopranos. I, I just need to sit. I, I mean, I need to just do it more, but I just, I started The Sopranos kind of right as I stopped watching a ton of TV um, and a ton of movies. Well, I mean, movies were still around, but like I started watching The Sopranos kind of right as I got back into playing a ton of video games. And uh, I just always picked video games over The Sopranos because um, I am just like that where I'll just watch nothing but movies for uh, six months and then do nothing but play video games and watch new releases for a couple months. Anyway, um so it just hit me at a at a weird time of the year. So I'm hoping this kickstarts me getting back into the show. I'm going to land in matinee because um, I think, but I am probably going to be seeing this opening weekend. I'm uh, very excited. It looks good quality. There's lots of things going for it. Um, it just doesn't quite grab me. This uh, the trailer, the the concept, a bunch of the stuff. It just doesn't quite grab me in the way that makes me be like, yo, like let's go. So uh, Shane, what about you? We saved the New Jersey kid for last. As an Italian-American from New Jersey, um, <laughs> I've seen two seasons of The Sopranos so far. I only mm-hmm. recently started watching it. I remember when my brother binged the whole entire show in like when I was in college. But being someone who, at 10 years old, was shown The Godfather because it's my culture, according to my grandfather. Like <laughs> These kinds of movies always struck a chord for me. And just like a familial thing, we were always so excited about them. My mom's excited about this movie. She didn't even watch The Sopranos. <laughs> and I remember watching this trailer for the first time. I mean, like, you see all the cast. And, like, you have Alessandro Nivola, who's a fantastic actor. And yeah. I don't think gets enough credit. Vera Farmiga made me very excited when she popped up in it. I just don't want to hate her as much as I hate <laughs> Tony's mom. God, yeah, I hate her so much in that show. Well, yeah. Oh my God, John Bernthal, Leslie Odom Jr., yeah. Michael Gandolfini playing James Gandolfini, Billy Magnuson kind of being a really surprise. Well, and uh, like Ray really Liotta like, the popping up movie. in it. And yeah. for me, this is opening weekend, and I didn't think it was going to be until I sat and watched that trailer in a theater. And the I'm like, this looks pretty cool. And then the Sopranos theme hit at the end of the trailer, and a lot of times, like that kind of like cheap like nodding at like an audience could be feeling very artificial, but like, boy, did that get me excited. And that's a jam <laughs> that theme song to the show. But yeah, so I'm definitely opening weekend for this. I'm act funny thing is I'm going to be watching this on HBO max Saturday night. So I'm excited. Yeah. And that's the thing I wonder, like, especially because Sopranos is an HBO show, how many people will, I mean, I guess there's always that, like, you know, I was talking about for WandaVision, like, if they just aired the finale in theaters, like I would, I would have gone. Um, or if they aired the whole thing in one run in theaters, I would have gone like uh, probably not for Falcon and the winter soldier and Loki, but for sure for WandaVision. Um, 
So, but like, yeah, I, I wonder if there's that, you know, like people, people think about that, like the Sopranos or like people were saying that with Game of Thrones, like put it in theaters too. We'll go see it. And if they would have, no, they wouldn't have. <laughs> they would have been like, I'm not, I'm not paying for money for this crap. I would have in season one. Um, so like, I, I do wonder if there's that aspect, uh, mm-hmm. but I think this is going to do just so many streams on HBO max, but I don't, I don't know that this will make even the slightest dent in the box office, but I think at this point Warner's more concerned about getting HBO Max subscribers than they are getting um, uh, box office numbers. And honestly, so. like, if there's if you're not subscribed to HBO Max yet, I just can't. I can't. I don't know what else I can say to convince you. It's by far the best streaming. It's service. the best. Yep. Uh, so much. Well, and and like, and I wouldn't get HBO Max to watch many Saints of a Doer, but because I have it, I'm probably going to check it out this weekend. Mm-hmm. I was just again, gonna... that's quintessentially me. Like, I've never seen the show. I probably wouldn't have gone out like maybe, but like since I have HBO Max, like I'm seeing it that weekend, and I'm looking forward to it. I want to see the numbers of The Sopranos two years ago, right? Who was still watching the show, right? And then look at it this year or in last year, you know, since since COVID, because now people finally getting that time, you know, and the prequel series announced or prequel movie coming coming out soon. And I want to see the number of the Sopranos after this movie comes out. I want I want to see like what the data looks like. Does this movie revive interest in the Sopranos? Um, I think. I mean, I think the answer is going to be a resounding yes. If yeah, people, I, I if, think if it's people like you, Heath, that haven't seen yeah. it, like if you really like this movie, what are the chances that you're going to be like, all right, I'm going to start the Sopranos now? Like even though it's daunting, like I'm going to do it. I get. I bet you there's even a, a non-small percentage of people that have already seen the entire series run that are going to see this movie and they're going to be revitalized like yeah we're watching the whole series again let's start from season one let's go like well, it's, and it's somebody that watched it while it aired but ne- but yep. has been wanting a rewatch mm-hmm. now they have an excuse for a re- rewatch mm-hmm. um yeah but when it all comes down the adams family 2 is going to win win this weekend <laughs> Yeah, because it can't be Hotel Transylvania because that's now bought by Amazon. Yep. So. There you go. Yeah, man, I, I I left those off of the list because I wonder why these are the bigger lists. Yeah, I think at one point I had I had them on there uh, until Venom got pushed up again. But that's fair. It's just like we don't need to talk about Adam's Family Two or Hotel Transylvania, but um, nobody cares. <laughs> My seven year old cares. <laughs> so. Uh, cool. Any last thoughts on Many Saints of Newark? Or are we good to move on to the the meat of this episode? Jersey Boy approved. There we go. Cool. Main entree. Let's go. <laughs> Main entree. Let's go. All right. Uh, the Daniel Craig Bond movies we'll be talking about uh, with the re- release of No Time to Die coming up soon. Um, so uh, that's coming out in the U.S. next week. It's coming out in the U.K. this week. Um, so we're doing it for the coming attraction next week. Uh, we'll have Chantal on the show. Um, so by the way, we're going to talk about spoilers about the Craig Bond films. So like, if you haven't seen them, I mean, like these are, I feel like you can spoil these movies, but I also feel like Spectre came out in what, like 2017, like 15, 15, it's been long enough. Um, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. You know, this isn't like the Marvel movies where they're releasing three a year or anything like that. So, um, full spoilers for all previous 007 movies. Um, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Inspector. Um, uh, we're not going to worry about shying away from that. But first, I thought this kind of gauge our experience with the James Bond fr- franchise. Um, I'll go ahead and kick us off. I um, uh, I grew up on the Pierce Bronson movies. I watched them just a bunch. Um, 
I've seen probably each of them, kind of, kind of like Heath was saying, you've seen a lot of them more than 20 times. I'm sure I've seen the Bronson ones more than 20 times. Uh, and I have and I saw the Craig ones in theaters opening night every time. And, uh, uh, and then kind of as I got a little older, kind of as right, right, I think about when Skyfall was coming out, because that was like my high school years. I wanted to go back and start the franchise and I made it through the first three Connery ones and then just fell off the wagon because it's a big daunting task. This is the 26th film, right? 25th. 25th. All right. I'm just bad with numbers right now. Um, <laughs> so this is the 25th film. God, wow. This is incredible. All right. Dr. No came out in what? 1961? 62. Yep. 62. All right. One off. Anyway, I'll, I'll take credit. <laughs> They're just coming out with a 25th film and Marvel in 10 years has done 25. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I got, and I loved the the first three Doctor No from Russia with Love and Goldfinger, and it was just uh, um, I, I for some reason I didn't continue, and then I've been rewatching some of them. So I've seen all of them except for the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton ones, uh, but I am slowly working my way through the franchise, um, uh, and that's that's my history with the franchise. I'm a big fan of the video games. I'll play any of them that come out. I'm really excited that IO Interactive is doing the next one because that's going to be. So stinking good. Um, so, yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, Heath, we'll save you for last. Uh, Shane, what what is your experience with this franchise? So I have been an avid Bond fan since I was eight years old. I uh, spent all month in November when it was Bond month watching basically just James Bond movies for my birthday month because I'm a November kid. And I've seen all of them a lot. <laughs> and I've had, I had all of them on VHS, the collector's edition VHS tapes. Then I had all of them on DVD. And now I have the Bond Blu-ray set somewhere up there. And like James Bond has been such a big thing in my life, which is hilarious if you think about it. Cause it's like little eight year old watching James Bond all the time. And it's just like, I'm a perfectly functioning adult and not a complete scumbag. Um, and, <laughs> and I treat women right. Unlike James Bond, <laughs> every yeah. single movie, which, and it's yeah. so interesting. Like I've been a huge fan. Some of them like watching as an adult, they're straight trash. And some of them are some of the best action movies ever put to film. And mm-hmm. I've seen every single one of them. And I definitely grew up on the Pierce Brosnan ones and Pierce Brosnan has a special place in my heart as James Bond. I played Goldeneye a lot when I was a kid and mm-hmm. getting to see Bond movies in a the theater was the coolest thing. And I remember seeing uh, Spectre opening night and seeing Skyfall opening night. And like my number one most anticipated film coming into this year was No Time to Die because I'm a huge Bond fan and I have to see them and it's been way too long. Is this six years now because of COVID and we've had to keep waiting. So, well, there was, there was a delay because Craig sustained an injury during the initial filming. And then there was another delay because of uh, just post-production stuff or, yeah. and reshoots. And then there was the and then three COVID. COVID delays and COVID and COVID yeah. and COVID. And... Cause this movie was originally supposed to release in 2019. Right. And then Craig injured himself on set. I yeah, so. I mean, the biggest delay you guys haven't even mentioned is just the pre-production, and that's signing Craig in the first place. Yeah, because uh, it there was a very real possibility. In fact, the odds were in favor that Spectre was going to be his last film. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that Barbara Broccoli and 
Aeon Productions and MGM were like, all right, we'll just pull a dumpster truck of cash up to your house. You sure you don't want to do like one more, one more? And then he's like, all right, fine, I'll do one more. So uh, that that dumpster truck took a couple years to be negotiated. So, uh, Well, but honestly, uh, like, you know, I think especially – they they need time to work up with on these scripts. The more complex yeah. these movies are getting, you know, these aren't like you look back at those old Connery ones and like it's all the same formula. You just like, whoa, what's another lewd character we can name up? All right, how about like what if this girl's name was like Pussy Galore? You know, and well, then <laughs> and they actually had books, yeah, based off say. of originally, even though some right. of them have nothing to do with what's in the book at all. A lot of times it's just nothing. a title, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just um, one of those one of those things that, um, I mean, I feel like they just needed a lot more work on that on the front end. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh, but like the, the, these movies are definitely a lot more complex than when this franchise started. Um, so, all right, uh, Heath, your turn. Let's talk about your history with the James Bond franchise. Uh, very similar, in fact, to Shane's. I am a massive James Bond fan. Uh, to say that James Bond is my favorite franchise is the understatement of the millennia. Uh, I have loved James Bond as long as I have loved movies. Uh, I remember very vividly getting the James Bond GoldenEye video game for the Nintendo 64, just having to fight my parents just to be able to get that. Uh, but they were okay with me watching the movies, which are way worse. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> You're not wrong. True. I, uh, like you guys, Pierce Brosnan was my Bond in the sense that that is the Bond that I grew up with. That is the Bond that I remember seeing in theaters first. Uh, GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies. I saw all of the. I've seen all of them in theaters since GoldenEye. Um, I remember very distinctly. It was not only the TNT specials, the two week run in November where they would air the James Bond films, but every year for Christmas, my grandfather would give me three or four more VHS copies of a, more James Bond films to fill out the collection. That was my favorite gift every year. Yes, more Bond films, and I would watch those. VHS tapes to the point that I was exhausting and burning up the tape year in and year out. Uh, I upgraded to DVD uh, when Blu-rays came out. Casino Royale was the first Blu-ray disc I bought, uh, and it still looks amazing. Um, I just got 4K. I haven't seen it though. Oh, you have to. I'm have sure. To. I'm sure the 4K one's going to look just yeah. incredible. The the parkour scene at the beginning is just insane. Um, but yeah, so James Bond is unequivocally my favorite franchise i love them much like what shane said uh as you grow up uh your appreciation for the film changes you mature you learn more about the world and you realize oh uh this guy's not the best guy and a lot of the things that take place in these movies are not okay uh and you have to have that awareness about them we look at that through the lens now where we can say yeah no that wasn't okay then uh, and we learn from it so that's part of it but also like you said some of these movies are are bad i'm just gonna say it they're they're bad these are like borderline unwatchable yeah like nobody at the same time diamonds are forever under yeah. any circumstances but Trash. at the same time like as as a kid growing up on these and just throughout the years i have easily watched every single james bond film at least 20 times some of them upwards to 40 or 50 times i love fanatically love these movies uh Th- this is my jam. I could talk James Bond for hours. Let's go. <laughs> What's the one you think you've seen the most? The one I've seen the most is definitely Goldeneye. Um, so growing up, uh, 
I live in St. Louis, Missouri. My family, we had a cabin down at the Lake of the Ozarks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had one of those portable combination mini TV VHS things oh, yeah, yeah. that were like yay big. And we put that in the car. And every weekend when we drive down to the lake, I'd pop in GoldenEye. I'd watch GoldenEye on the way down to the lake on Sunday. I'd watch GoldenEye on the way back on like a random Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the middle of the week. GoldenEye. Like <laughs> and there's there's that one I've probably seen upwards to 70 plus times. I, I Maybe even 100. No exaggeration. But there's, there's also an interesting thing. Like we've all talked about playing the video games, at least some of them. And like mm-hmm. I, I feel like Pierce Bronson was so incorporated into like he loved playing James Bond. Because he not only did he do it in the movies, but like he lent his likeness. Uh, yeah. well, all of them, I think, lend their likeness. Um, but he also did the voice work for at least everything or nothing and um, uh, the Nightfire. Um, mm. Oh no, he lent his likeness, but not his voice to Nightfire. Um, but he, but like you, could, I think he did the um, World Is Not Enough and Tomorrow Never Dies, and I think Goldeneye video games too. I think he lends his voice there. Um, Asia Under Fire is the only one that doesn't have likeness or which is the one I played the most. Um, uh, doesn't have his likeness or his voice. Um, but and like Sean Connery coming back to do like the voice for From Russia With Love, which was really cool. But like Daniel Craig, I think just let them use his likeness. I don't think he cares at all about being a part of the video games. They released two under him. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, it's just like there's so like Pierce Bronson loved being in that role and he was there for so long. And yeah, just, I played all those video games and I will always play them. I, I, I've recently picked up a PS3, um, so I can play all the games that aren't backwards compatible on the Xbox one. And, uh, uh you, you guarantee the first, some of the first games I bought were bloodstone and quantum of solace and double seven legend. Quantum of solace was actually fun. It's a fun game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. And bloodstone is, is a fun game. And, 007 Legends and GoldenEye Reloaded. You know those were the first four four games yep. I bought. So. Nice. Um, anyway. Um, well, let's do it. Let's start with uh, Casino Royale. Uh, we'll get into this. Um, by the way, at the end of this, um, uh, talking about these movies, I want to rank um, rank these films in our uh, in our kind of areas. Like which one do we think is number one, two, three, four? Um, Yay, rankings. And, and I also <laughs> think this would be a fun time that we at the end of this where we can talk about um, ranking the bonds, um, the, the actual like actors, um, or the actual heirs, however you want to define that. Let's do it. We'll, we'll Let's do rank that. Everything. The, we'll do it at the very end. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll and, short. and we also talked, I would like to be able to talk about the whole bond franchise at some point, but like we, yep. I think we just got to split up, split it up into, Oh um, no, more James Bond podcasts. That's terrible. <laughs> I think, I think we just need to split it up into the actor portraying him just because yeah. there is so many films. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but at least today we're talking about the Craig one. So Casino Royale, um, let's see, Heath, do you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay? Absolutely love it. Uh, I love Casino Royale. It is my second favorite James Bond film ever made up until this point. I think it is a masterpiece of action for what it is. It is terrific. Very nice. And Shane, what about you? Love it. (laughs) Also at the very top of James Bond films. Martin Campbell knows how to direct a Bond movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Arguably the only thing he knows how to direct, but he can do them well. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie too. I'm really high side. I loved it. This is, um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this is my favorite uh, uh, Bond movie only because 
Um, I've also said that it's uh, it's it's my like twenty third favorite movie of all time. Um, this is a movie that like um, I think people loved when it came out, uh, and then all of a sudden people stopped talking about it, and now people are like, I don't think it's the best, or like I don't think like it's it's good, but it's not great. And I'm like, no, no, it's amazing, it's incredible, and it gets better every time I watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Lashif is one of the best villains ever, especially like the way when I was, when this came out, this is 2006. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's what I was six. I was 11 when this came out and I saw it in theaters and I was just like, all right, this is kind of boring with some really cool action sequences. And then I watched it when I was like, you know, 13. I was like, all right, this is pretty good. The boring parts are more withstandable. And I watched it like it was in high school. I was like, this is incredible. I watched it like in college and like, actually figuring out what MI6 was doing with the relationship that Lashif has with the arms dealers is like, this is a really amazing espionage movie mm-hmm. that is a lot more than just bad guy, pew, pew, pew. And, uh, and, and poker playing and all that. And like, gosh, I, yeah, uh, I really, really, really love this movie. I think very, the old, my maybe only complaint is this feels like two or three movies worth of material because you could make a whole separate movie based off of the Vesper Venice sequence. Um, but like, it feels like it, it, this is, this movie's kind of like return of the King where it ends and then it has another ending and then it has another ending. And it's just, it kind of suffers from that a little bit, but still, I think um, this isn't just truly astonishing film. I will push back on that only slightly. I do agree that it feels like, oh, it should be over by now. But I think that's because we're so used to how films are constructed that when we have a big climax, we assume that a resolution is only usually going to last anywhere between 10 and 15 minutes, and then the film is going to cut out. Uh, And the climax to Casino Royale is so impactful. And the sequencing being the, the final hand of the poker game all the way through the car crash to the torture, which is roughly about 15 minutes of runtime. That is some of the best sequencing of action filmmaking you could ever make. And the tension and anxiety you feel as an audience is palpably thick so that when you come down from that high, you just assume, Oh, it can't, there, there can't be more than this. And there is. And so I, I do understand what you're saying that, yeah, it feels like it drags on, but it drags on because the story isn't done. It just, it's shot and filmed so well that it, our brains or we're, our psychology as an audience were conditioned to think, Oh, it should be done. Cause that was so incredible. Um, maybe, maybe um, drags on is not the right way. I should have phrased that. I just mean, it feels like this is a trilogy's worth of content sure. that is put into one. I like, I feel like you could make a whole film about Vesper's betrayal and then a whole film about, well, the resolute, you know, uh, realizing what Vesper was actually doing. And I think sure. they tried to do that with quantum Masalas, but we'll get there. Um, <laughs> well, that's the funny thing because that's just the continuation <laughs> of the story. Just right. not well, written well. <laughs> let's not get there yet. We have, we have so much more to say. So I want to real quickly, because uh, I'd like to treat this almost as a retrospective for those that are unaware. Because like you said, you were uh, 11. So you were born in 95. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's audience members that are even younger or maybe people just now getting into the bond franchise that uh, are as unfamiliar Um, myself, who's a fanatic and is a little bit older. I'll remember Shane, you might remember it's a miracle that Casino Royale got made. Oh yeah. It is 
astonishing when you look back on it. So the Bond franchise, for all intents and purposes, in a lot of people's eyes, was dead. Yep. Die Another Day was a critical failure. It was a commercial failure. People hated it resoundingly. It w- It is memed to this day, almost 20 years later, for how bad its special effects are. Um, and that was the end of Pierce Brosnan. And just a, a, about a year or so after that film, this new revelation of a film called The Born Identity came out. And it shattered what we know of action filmmaking. It completely transformed the genre and how we define action films, what it means to really be visceral in our action. Uh, Things like the shaky cam maybe haven't aged well, but the idea of putting harsh, brutal hand-to-hand combat in frame and showing people get hurt, showing your hero get bloodied, uh, not glorifying violence to the sense that we're going to put blood and guts and gore and everything, but showing that, oh yeah, this guy is a, a, a really tough ombre. He can do whatever he wants and get, a, you know, that shift in the dynamic of action filmmaking really indicated a way that James Bond had not was a choice, but had was forced to evolve into. And the casting of Daniel Craig was a big part of that because he had done some before this uh, in particular if you ever seen the movie called layer cake mm-hmm. uh he was phenomenal and it, it almost re- if you go back and watch layer cake now it almost feels like an audition movie for james bond well they've the producers have said that's the role that they've yeah cast him for yeah and, and that's uh, why i watched layer cake and then i realized oh it's also a matthew vaughn movie and it's yeah. incredible yes <laughs> it is and uh but just getting him to do that brutal action bringing him on board but even the the vitriol of that casting decision like you think people hated when they announced Heath Ledger as the Joker. This was almost just as bad. The uh, Heaven forbid, James Bond be blonde. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> it just, it blew people's minds. And there are boycotts, actual boycotts to this film. And then when it came out, opening well, weekend. He's it, like dirty blonde. He's not even yeah, like pure blonde. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's such a, a faux outrage. But it. It's it really is quite incredible that the film came together in the way it was, and again bringing back Martin Campbell. Martin Campbell uh, revived the Bond franchise himself already once before by making Goldeneye with Pierce Brosnan. So now they're bringing him back to do it again with Daniel Craig. And it's, it's the way that all the pieces fell together. It very easily could have floundered, and it could have been a catastrophe, but it wasn't. And it really stands the test of time, like you said, uh, Aaron, that. Some people may watch this now and be like, uh, were we overblowing it, overrating it? Like, no, this movie still holds up. This is still one of the best action movies you could ever fathom. And it's not even just the action. Like, it's an intense plot. It's cerebral. It makes you think. There, it's There's just so much depth to this film. Well, and the build off of that, too, with the depth of the film, because up so many of the Bond movies, Bond is just, just, going around sleeping with women, depending on which bond you are. Like Sean Connery was intense. Roger Moore was just like basically half of his movies were him winking at the camera and making horrible, like punny jokes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And this is bonds, a horrible person and it doesn't shy away from that. He's an intense and brutal and like, he just uses people and they set that up with how cold and callous he is in that opening sequence, which is one of the best mm-hmm. opening sequences of any Bond movie. 
And the whole complex relationship that he has with Vesper and him actually getting hurt and being vulnerable, they've only done in a couple of Bond movies. And that's one of the things I appreciate most about the Daniel Craig films is like you actually see Bond as like a human being and not just like a movie character who just like, this is what Bond does. Let's put him in a new Bond movie kind of thing. There's Mm. complexities to his humanity. That well, is and, not displayed in really almost any other Bond film. And look, but we have to give so much credit to to Daniel Craig in this role as well because yeah. he plays the character differently. Mm-hmm. It's not this over the top wink wink nudge nudge guy. And reading a little bit of the IMDb trivia earlier today, um, just to kind of get a glimpse about what this movie would go. And he, he so he, Craig originally rejected the role of Bond because he felt the franchise was exactly what you were talking about, Heath. It's it's formulaic. It's it not not exciting anymore. It's not fun, and it's over the top, ridiculous, and, and stupid. And then he read the script. And he's like, "Oh, this is something different." All right, I'm in for that. And then, uh, and then the other thing too, it says uh, in the shower scene when Vesper uh, Vesper was originally yeah. supposed to be wearing nothing but her underwear, and then Craig was like, "Hey, um, she wouldn't have stopped to take off her clothes." Could you imagine somebody cast as James Bond saying, "Hey, I don't think that woman, or I think that woman that we have naked should have clothes on." Like that's so yeah. counter thought to this to this franchise and like so we have to like we have to give a lot of credit where credit's due this this is how you do a reboot this is how you you be like we have this really cool concept that was great and it has gotten stale and and unexciting and nobody really cares anymore like and and i want to give credit but only for legacy and like now this is how you do a reboot yeah and i want to give credit real quick because you're right, Daniel deserves a ton of recognition for his efforts. But I, I want to give credit to people that often don't get credit, and that's the producers and the studio executives for mm-hmm. listening. It is hard in Hollywood to change the mind of a studio exec, to change the mind of, of a producer, and to make them be open-minded to suggestions. For them to listen to Daniel in that circumstance, that is just as important as Daniel being cast and making the suggestion anyway because i guarantee you if roger moore makes that suggestion which he never would have but let's say that roger moore makes that suggestion there's no way a producer in the late 70s early 80s is like oh yeah no let's totally have that woman put her clothes back on that's not happening (laughs) she's gonna be in her underwear but they were willing to listen. They were like, no, Daniel's right. This woman is in shock. She's not going to take the time to take off her clothes. She doesn't even know where she is right now. The only thing that matters is trying to find, to make the world stop spinning and trying to like calm her body down. It, it brings that, like I said earlier, that level of humanity and compassion to this character that previously was void, non-existent. Yeah. Well, and let's let's also like again with producers, since we're just throwing out credit. Uh, I mean, we've already talked about the decision to get Daniel uh, Daniel Craig as this character, which we've already also praised. Uh, but like, Mads Mikkelsen was a nobody to an American audience, and yep. probably to a UK audience as well. I mean, I can't speak as because uh, I'm not from the UK, but like he had not making his made his international film recognition yet. He had been recognized in his home country, but not not necessarily the world yet. And like, what an incredible choice. He's so perfect in this role. Mm-hmm. You also throw on Eva Green, who again, really popular in France, yep. not, not made yep. her American, you know, and, and she went on to have an amazing Hollywood career since then. 
Uh, Judy Dench was already part of the franchise. Uh, and the other, to me, the best casting choice is Jeffrey Wright as uh, yep, Felix. Uh, because, again, who had, I mean, he wasn't like a, you know, foreign country brought, you know, brought over for this, you know, and made, and made a Hollywood presence known. He was just, I think he was that guy that you maybe recognized in stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't notable. Um, right. Like I, I, I think, I mean, I, like I said, I was 11, but like you might've recognized him in, I guess he was in young Indiana Jones Chronicles, uh, Hamlet, um, Shaft. Most um, of his recognizable roles have come since then. Right. Yeah. Marturian candidate. Springboard for him. Syriana. Right. But now all of a sudden you like, you don't get Westworld, uh, with him in this, in that role. If you don't have him as, as Felix. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, another thing that, I want to talk about when we talk about just how raw this movie feels. It's not even just like the shower scene and someone dealing with shock. Uh, the movie makes our characters vulnerable, not mm-hmm. just emotionally, but physically, especially James. Like there are several times where you're like, Oh no, he could like legit die here. Uh, when the, the scene where he gets poisoned yeah. in the middle of the card mm-hmm. game and has to run away and go hit himself with a defibrillator is absolutely intense. The torture scene, which I, it's so uncomfortable, but at the same time, so necessary to show like, yeah, why do we go through these extravagant tortures? It really is quite simple to just break a man. And Mads Mikkelsen's like, I will break you. You can't, you know, and it, it's. We don't have the, to have him laying down on a, on a thing with a slowly moving laser. Laser, exactly. Him. All uh, you need is a chair and a rope. Yeah. Yep. Like, uh, and th- just so many moments like that, or like uh, someone being chased down with a machete in a stairwell. That is horrifying. Like yeah. it's, it's. There's a lot of scenes like this that are simple in nature. They don't have to be overly complicated, like past Bond films, where we can still get that intense, visceral anxiety buildup from an audience to display amazing action, and it flows through the whole picture. The, the last thing I'll say about this this film, because um, we should probably move on semi-soon. The last thing I'll say is that um, these Bond films, especially like to the point where you get to the Pierce Bronson stuff, almost felt like kind of like vacations, kind of like how Adam Sandler just does his vacation movies now. Or, you know, you think of like the, um, the, the, the original Ocean's Eleven, like just the Rat Pack wanted a weekend in Vegas. Yeah. Um, uh, or a couple weeks in Vegas, uh, like you, like the Bond films had become that. Where it's just like, hey, let's go to Morocco because why not, and let's go to Jamaica because, because why not, and all that. But like every destination is intentional and in, and in, integral to the plot, and you can't take out any of the any of the sections of the film. Or like, but because you have the the people from Africa that are after Lashif, and you have Lashif kind of being an international dealer, and mm-hmm. you have. Um, the you know encountering him in the bahamas like this it, it is a world adventure the the airport in that's germany right no that's uh miami oh yeah it's yep. miami that's right sorry uh like but you have all these um you have all these destinations that are like yeah that makes sense like it's not just like oh let's go to morocco because we can mm-hmm. and nobody's gonna care um, so like this doesn't, th- I mean, I'm sure they had some time that they got to just like be in Miami, but, um, but it, it doesn't feel like a it's just not globe trotting for the sake of globe trotting. It's yes. globe trotting with narrative plot purpose. Yes. So, and all right. Uh, I said my one last thing. Do you guys have one last thing for Casino Royale? I guess to just throw in there, 
I love the credit sequence with all the cards and everything. Chris Cornell's song, great. And dang, is the end of that movie when he shoots Mr. White and stands over him with that gun and just like, James Bond, James Bond, and just amazing way to end this movie. Loved it. Yeah, I uh, I have two final things. One will actually tie into what Shane said. First, though, uh, I have to say, if you do like poker, uh, this is a fun poker movie to watch. It's not entirely accurate. It's not entirely realistic. The final hand that ends the game is almost a mathematical improbability. Yes, right. Uh, but is it fun and entertaining to watch? Absolutely. That is, it is fun. Uh, it gets the suspense of playing a poker yeah. game, right? Without necessarily getting the cards. <laughs> yeah. And as, if, especially what they did do a good job of is while Bond is playing, you have Renee Mathis, a side character, explaining the game. So even those who yes. are unfamiliar with the game, they are explaining it in a way that is not insensitive to the audience and talking down to them while still giving the exposition needed to understand what's happening on screen. So it's one of the better poker scenes in film. May not be entirely accurate, but it's still entertaining. I know Dicer yeah. would kill us if we didn't mention it. Uh, number two, uh, banking off what Shane said, I think it is important to note, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that this is a reboot. Mm-hmm. This is the only time in the history of the James Bond franchise there has been a timeline reboot. Every other James Bond movie has been consecutively following one after the other. There may be recasts as to who plays Bond or who plays another character, but they do happen in sequence. When we get to Daniel Craig and Casino Royale, this is new. Everything else that happened before didn't happen, or it did in a different timeline. Uh, In fact, the movie opens, and he's not even 007 yet. Our cold open is him earning his 007 status, and... It's really supposed to be his first mission, his first adventure. And like Shane said, by the end, that's the first time he gives the iconic line, my name is Bond, James Bond. And then the James Bond music theme song plays in the background for the first time in the movie. So like this is setting everything up. If you do want to see No Time to Die and want to know what happens or how to go into it, you do not have to watch 24 movies. You can start right here and move forward. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you can just watch four. Um... All right, well, let's do it. Let's uh, let's get around to it. Uh, Quantum of Solace. Um, Shane, do you like it, love it, hate it, dislike it, think it's just okay? What is a Quantum of Solace? <laughs> First question. Um, I dislike it. I don't hate it. There's some things in it that I'm like, ooh, you had some promise here, but you know, this, yeah, I'm not a huge fan of this movie. Okay. And uh, Heath? Uh, I'm going to give it the very low side of it's just okay, high side of disliked Ooh, it. That's very but interesting. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up low, low side of just okay. See, normally I feel like I'm that kind of person that's like, oh, here's a universally hated movie that like, I'm like, look, it's not that bad, right? Like, I don't think that Venom is quite as bad as people make it out to be. Or like, I don't think that like, you know, Thor The Dark World, like, I, it's not a good movie, but like, it's not the worst movie of all time. It's just the worst Marvel movie of all time. Yeah. Um, MCU Marvel. Um, but no, I think, I think critics and fans are 100% right. This is a truly terrible movie. I hate it. Um, <laughs> It's look. It's not diamonds are forever, right? That's still yeah. that's still probably my least. That's still my least favorite of the ones I've seen. But gosh, this is close. Uh, it's so infuriating. This one. I, I saw it in theaters and I saw it like 
once not too long after it came out. And then I just like never picked it up again. And I never bought it because I was like, I don't want to watch that garbage again. And like based off the way that people talk about it online, like I'm pretty sure this isn't one of those. Let's just revisit it 10 years later. And I'm sure we'll find something that's really cool Uh, because I watched it again. um, God, So I watched this. I haven't seen any of these movies in probably a year, by the way. I should make that note. Uh, because about a year ago, me and my wife watched all of them because we wanted to watch them before No Time to Die was coming out. Um, so we did the Craig ones, and then we started. We went back to the Connery ones, and we're we're working our way through the older ones. Um, but uh, but like, I, I just I picked up on like it can't be that bad, guys. It is that bad. This is a terrible movie. I hate it so much. <laughs> Which I I remember correctly. This was around the time of that huge writer strike in Hollywood. Yep, yes. And he went in without Huge a part script. About the history of this. Yeah, so like, they went in, they tried to do what Christopher McQuarrie did with Mission Impossible Fallout, which I'm, I'm guessing that that's not uncommon for these big action franchises. But you know, Or at least kind of your outline and fill it in. But this one shows. Not during a writer's strike. <laughs> this one shows bad. Because, like, yeah. there's... What's so interesting is because Casino Royale was such a fresh take on Bond... There's some of the worst elements of Bond movies in this. The whole Strawberry Fields thing with her and then the obnoxious nod to like Goldfinger and she's like covered in oil and she's just oil lady. She's just a walking like piece of meat for Bond. Yeah. And it's just like, yep, this is reverting back way hard on what we just set up in the last one. And like the antagonist is not memorable come like come on you have to have a good bond villain it's one of the required right. things right and who who is the intended villain Mr. is it green, green or white it's green yeah but i'm like but like white feels just as much if not more or matthias like <laughs> yeah so i'll i'll give my subtle defense and again i, I stress my my defense is not to say that this is good it's just that it's passable you know uh uh, I will give the movie some leniency in the fact that this was influenced by the writer's strike, uh, mm-hmm. that affected a lot of film and television shows, you know, like my favorite TV show at the time was heroes and season one of heroes was amazing. And then the show never recovered after the writer's strike and season two was a huge flopping loss. Wet- yeah. So, uh, it's, it's hard. And I, and I want to give recognition to that, that, at one point, this film had over six credited writers, one of which, after getting a paycheck, literally left the building and went right outside and started protesting and joined the picket lines uh, to, you know, boycott and perform in the writer's strike. So, I mean, this was a tough and challenging time. And I've heard many times in interviews that the producers thought, if we don't do it now, this might kill it and it will be just like trying to get casino royale on the books again and we might have to wait another five years so they went forward with it without a script they went into the movie with just a few pages here and there and they cobbled scenes together and it just it's entirely lost um so that's important to recognize doesn't excuse anything it's still a not great film but it isn't important to at least keep that in the back of your mind i will say that i give some credit to some of the action sequences uh in particular there's a scene at the opera in the middle of this film that i find enjoyable i think it is by far and away the best part of the movie where there is 
I'm not saying it's the Godfather, but they do the dual editing technique of the Godfather's baptism scene where they are sequencing some events simultaneously while seeking sequencing others and uh, showcasing dialogue from a third sequence. And it's shot and portrayed very well. But it these seems fleeting... more reminiscent to me of the like Mission Impossible Rogue Nation opera house even, scene. Yeah, e- even that. It's very familiar. Um, but these shining moments are few and far between. And that is definitely where the movie suffers. The movie lacks in a coherent story and direction. It's very clear at some points. The plot literally just makes up whatever it needs to connect the story pieces. So it's like, oh, we just found this guy who has money. And these money, well, luckily we tagged it earlier. Hey, you guys, did you know we tagged this money? And he, he cashed it at this bank. Uh, you can go to this bank now and find him. Like, it's just, it, they totally make stuff up. The plot doesn't work. There's plot holes abound. Uh, I, I just, I can enjoy some of the action sequences. I, I think Olga Kirilenko, although incredibly limited in what she's allowed to do in the film, does a good job with what she is doing. Um, and I want to give it some credit in that regard, but yeah, it is a, it is a whiff on the grander scale. It is the low side of it's okay. High side of disliked it. Uh, I will say of interesting note, it's the first time and so far only time in the history of James Bond to have a direct sequel. Literally Casino Royale mm-hmm. ends with him shooting Mr. White out. And then the Casino uh, Quantum of Solace begins with him running away driving away from the house in which he shot Mr. White and he has Mr. White in the trunk of his car yep. uh, after he kidnapped him. So, I which mean, it's such mo- a shame because on your, Ma- on her Majesty's secret service sets up for a perfect sequel. And then it yeah. just never, Oh got my made. God. Never the beginning happens. of diamonds are forever where it's supposed to be like picking up from there. Oh my God. Ugh. But anyway, I, uh, you know, I think I was just um, going to say like specifically that opening sequence too with the car chase, the editing in it made me want to vomit. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. Oh my god. But Well, so that was going to bring me bring me to my point that I wanted to jump off what you you said Heath is you you're right. We should look at this in the context of this was made during the writer strike, but like I feel like that doesn't necessarily excuse it because you don't necessarily have to make your film right now. You can yeah. wait for a little bit, especially like if you're going for the make up the story while you shoot like then you're not going to postpone the shoot date too much i mean i don't know if maybe they were like who knows how long the strike could last like i don't i don't have no idea but i feel like um there there's look we should look at at it in that context uh but the studio still chose to release this film and not only that but shane what you said the editing in this fight in these fight sequences are terrible none of these fight sequences are very cool the opera house one is 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 the best it gets yeah. but the the climactic fight battle whatever thing is awful um the, i hate the plane sequence with a burning passion and it's not there's, good there's nothing no not, not even the action set pieces are memorable and you don't have to have writing for the action set pieces so if this would have even reverted to some of those older bond i mean it would have ruined what they were going for if they would have just made another you know the world is not enough or whatever but like what's not enough is at least watchable at least last time i watched it probably 15 years ago like um the quantum of solace is not watchable to me um i think the only context i'll ever watch this again is I, all right, I feel like I'm going to have to watch it again before No Time to Die comes out because I feel like I know the rest of these movies and I don't know Quantum of Solace, but it is kind of really important, at least to what I can tell is going to happen 
for No Time to Die. The only thing I could say that's important is just to know that there's this guy named Mr. Green who's part of Quantum, which is part of Spectre, and they wanted to, you know, covet and consume water so that the rest of the world couldn't have it and they wanted to extort people and, and well, that's like it that's the, the whole but movie. the mr white character wound up being really important inspector which we'll get to yeah well at least if you watch specter then i think you're okay <laughs> yeah. like a- me- again and i'm not i'm not excusing this movie i'm not i agree mm-hmm. with you aaron i'm not saying that the writer strike is a, a be all band aid escape card no, for but you're right we should mention it we it, should but say, it is sure. worth mentioning uh i i but yeah, the, like I said, the the plot doesn't really work. Very, the the opera scene is, I wouldn't say incredible, but it's really enjoyable. And there are some other action scenes that I find at least tolerable or fun to take in. But most of it is edited horribly. It's very choppy. It's cut to death. Like a lot of ways, Marvel movies are currently criticized. Uh, that opening sequence, car chase, like you were saying, Shane, it's it's indiscernible sometimes what's even happening on the screen. And it's it's it could have been a lot better and especially when you have a famous french actor like matthew amalric as your lead villain who has such charisma to him uh you're bringing back jeffrey wright like they're the pieces were there to do something special and they couldn't bring it together and they wasted david harbour (laughs) (laughs) yeah they did to me this movie is having seen all the bond movies so many times this is the most just flat out forgettable to me like there's other ones that are laughably bad like diamonds are forever i cannot forget because like it's so absurd and terrible to me but like this just feels like there's not much to even just remember or anything of consequence to me and which is unfortunate and then the only two things i wanted to add one very interesting choice for the bond theme (laughs) Of Alicia Keys and Jack White. White. And then... I like it in theory. I don't think I liked it. Yeah. 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 I'm like, and still, what's a quantum solace? The last thing I want to say, though, is at the end, one, the whole uh, ending of Mad Max thing, where it's just like, you could either uh, cut the chain off or cut your ankle off, or you could keep walking... (laughs) Or he could drink this oil and end it yeah. kind of thing. And then, but they tried to add in that emotional, like still con- connective tissue with him confronting Vespers. Like were they Former fiancés or something or other, whatever their connection was. I'm sure. And I'm like, nice try trying to like connect it back. But I still think that, they still had certain moments of vulnerability for bond and I can appreciate that just a little bit, but besides that, this one, not my jam. I'll, I'll give my one last say on this, which is, uh, cause there's really not much more to say about this. I, yeah. I agree. I, I, this movie is just forgettable. This is middle of the road, forgettable. This will be one of those movies that if you ask someone to list the 25, counting the new one coming out here next week, 25 James Bond films. This one's probably going to be the one a lot of people forget. Aaron, you said it yourself. You don't even remember much of what happened. Like, it's just, it is that kind of movie. Uh, I will say in reference to you asking what a Quantum of Solace is, uh, a Quantum of Solace is the last James Bond story from Ian Fleming that they hadn't used yet. So that is why this 
became a movie. That is why they used that title. Uh, and it is why we have since then had to have original stories. Uh, there were a couple Brosnan ones before this that were also original stories that they had made up. Uh, but this is the final last Ian Fleming original James Bond novel. Or it, actually, this one, it wasn't even a full feature novel. It was a short story that they had tried to adapt. But so that's why that's. Did they at least explain it in, the, in the, the short novel? It's no, like, I get what they, I get the quantum part. But, yeah, you know. I mean, the, the title literally means a small bit of peace, but quantum itself in the movie actually stands for the name of an organization. So it contradicts the title well, it's, because they it, couldn't it's have just, the right just like the movie itself. It's not thought out well. Well, and the movie doesn't have a message of a small bit of peace. It has no. a, a, this is a long agonizing journey for Bond mm-hmm. between the quantum stuff and the. Eva Evergreen or Vesper Lynn's fiance the only or whatever thing, thing I could get is that the small bit of peace, the quantum of solace is at the very end. He at least was able to convert, confront Vesper's lover and, yeah. you know, bring him to some form of justice. And that didn't include killing him, which goes back to the earlier parts of the movie. And even Casino Royale where M says, you're not capable of not killing someone. So it, character growth guys, but uh, well, you yeah, put it's, more it's, thought into it than who actually wrote this. <laughs> it happens when you see a bad movie 20 times. Yeah. Um, I don't have one last thing because I just, yep. um, I do think this movie is just atrociously bad. And um, <laughs> to the skyfall. I, I, I just don't think there's anything redeemable about this movie. Um, yeah. Um, but I guess it's not Diamonds Are Forever. That's his most redeemable thing because that's it's that's still the worst Bond movie to me. Um, to Skyfall, yes. Um, I'll, I'll start us off this time. Um, I also loved this movie. A very high side of loved it. Um, and uh, this is this used to tie the record for a movie I saw three times in theaters um, because it is that good. Seeing it in IMAX was a delight. Um, yeah, I uh, really love this movie. Uh, Shane, let's go with you. This is my favorite Bond movie, so love it. Okay. <laughs> and, oh, I feel like it balances what they were doing with rebooting Bond and then being able to organically bring in classic Bond and it just melded yes. so well together. Yeah, this is the best version of melding new and old. Yeah. What about you, Heath? Uh, I think this is the best James Bond film ever made. I don't even think it's close. And I say that after you guys heard me gush on Casino Royale, I think this one is that much better. Uh, I absolutely love this movie. Okay. I know I'm in the minority. Uh, Skyfall is my second favorite Bond movie um, uh, of, of all of them. Um, and uh, I don't think any of the ones I haven't seen would contend for them. Um, they won't. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I know, like, spoiler, I know, won't. I'm pretty sure Goldeneye, Goldfinger, and From Russia with Love are the only other ones in the conversation. Um, yeah, those are so, my top five as well. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Um, <laughs> One interesting thing, side note, most James Bond fans will agree, like, it's pretty, like, there's about five, six movies that pretty much universally everyone's like, oh yeah, these are just the best ones. You could, you could shuffle the order, but these are the five or six best and everything else falls behind. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and I think that some of them are a good bit of fun, but, uh, yeah. Um, I look, I think this is a really incredible film. 
and it's terrific. And I had some problems with it in 2012, but nothing that there was nothing that they could control. And it was only just like a lot of it felt not fresh because you have um, the it was they tried to reveal one of the characters as Money Penny at the end. Yep. And like try to make it a big reveal at the end. And then they also had the whole Javier Bardem uh, breaking into prison um, on purpose so he could sabotage him from the inside out. And like we had literally just seen that with Loki and the Avengers. Um, oh, and the, the it was the and Money the Penny. Joker. It was the Robin the reveal Knight. for the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was just thinking like there's so many. Th- it's not their fault. They were filming these films at the same time. And I'm sure they weren't collaborating on screenplays. Like it's not their fault. But I was just like some of this feels a little stale. Uh, obviously, like in hindsight, like, you know, it's it just. It's it's fine. Uh, I I really 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 love this movie. I like how it blends old and new. There's just something, um, there's just something special about the Casino Royale story, um, and the, the inner workings. I've never. I don't. I don't know that I've seen at least done so well an agency like MI6 um, working so hard at um, um working with other organizations to topple anyway what we're not talking about casino Royale. i think casino Royale is just really something special and i think this one is also it's just like this is like 40 or 50 of all time for me casino royale is like 23 or so um so yeah but you guys um we, we already talked about the blending of the old and well being perfect you know it has arguably the best bond car and in my opinion the best bond bond villain of all time uh with silva um even though he's a little bit of a cliche, Javier Bardem's performance is just excellent. Well, you have to follow up Anton Chigurh with something special. And boy, is that <laughs> blonde hair something. That was a very what? interesting choice. And Aaron knows this from being on, like, anyone who's listened to any of my Coen Brothers episodes of my show will know that I have to take a moment to give a huge shout out to Roger Deakins because yeah. Chef's Kiss, this movie oh. is shot incredibly and is so mm-hmm. beautiful. And the shadows, the lighting, the whole ending sequence on that like frozen lake with the fire in the background, incredible. That whole sequence he has with that assassin with all the neon lights in the background, incredible. Mm-hmm. And just from like a technical standpoint and Sam Mendes does such an amazing job shooting this film and directing it. And the opening credit sequence is one of my favorites and you go Adele Skyfall is yes. a great classic style bond theme. And I love the fact. So two other characters that I really want to talk about one. So generally you have a bond girl. And who winds up becoming a big part of the film and they're in the whole film. The biggest female character in this is M. And I love the fact that she got this bigger role in this and something substantial and meaningful after all these years. And I thought that felt fresh and interesting. And then Kincaid at the end of this movie, when you go and Albert Finney there and with that sawed off shotgun is like, welcome to Scotland. I'm just like, Yes. It's like one of my, I love minor characters in James Bond movies and he's so great. And fun fact, they did ask Sean Connery Mm. if he would be that. And I would have lost my mind if I was sitting in a theater 
and that was him, I would have lost it. Completely yeah. lost my mind. Yeah, because it would have it would have proven the theory right that Bond is not a name of the person itself. It's just a identity they give orphans no, it wouldn't have so. proven it it just would have been a contradiction <laughs> <laughs> well and that's it well that's the thing because this they film... would have tried to prove it so so you there's movies in the middle you haven't seen yet that conclusively state it is one person well and he has one timeline and it is and they just recast them well uh but yeah skyfall is that film that's like james bond is a person <laughs> and this is but also life. because the Daniel Craig universe is a rebooted timeline, they could have had Craig, I mean Connery, as Kincaid, and he would have just been Kincaid because Sean Connery as James Bond didn't exist in this timeline. All right, so. hear me out. The Daniel Craig Bond movies are a prequel to all the other Connery, Moore, Dalton, Bronson. Well, ones. to be perfectly honest, I feel like you could argue anything at this point, yeah. and yeah, I feel like really could. So you could. All perfect- of the other ones take place in the future, and Craig was just the original James Bond. Everybody was named after him. I feel like you so could. The Cold War is going to happen again. Yes, <laughs> I feel like you uh-huh. could argue that Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, are like the first Bond story. And then yeah. all of them happen, and then you come back to Skyfall because, like, the whole entire thing—it's like old man Bond is out of shape; mm-hmm. he's run down and nonsense. It's like that's the thing about James Bond. You could argue anything at this point, and I because think I don't think it's the direction. <laughs> I think that's the direction they should take this franchise. Is whenever they, you know, cast the new Bond. I mean, I'm sure they already have cast the new Bond; they just haven't announced. Um, when, whenever the next person takes over, they should canonize saying Daniel Craig's character was legally named James Bond and the future people just assume his identity um, to protect their actual one. Um, I I feel like that's, that's the way to do it. I feel like you just, they're all the same person. That's the point. And it doesn't matter because I don't think these movies care enough. Well, look, if we get, if we get, if we get that line, if they're all the same person, then that's fine because that means my dreams of Idris Elba becoming James Bond could be true because he's just too old at this point, but not if he's the same person as Daniel Craig. I Um, I would love Idris to do it. I agree. I think he's too old. My, I I think Tom Hiddleston is probably who they're going to go with, but who knows? Uh, So a couple things I want to say about this film. Um, One, uh, besides my personal admiration I think you could make an argument that even from a critical perspective, from an actual factual based perspective, this is the best James Bond film ever. It is the most awarded James Bond film ever. Uh, it's the most nominated. Uh, it received five Academy Award nominations. Uh, it took home two of them as the most this franchise has ever gotten by far. Uh, it is the most cr- fi- uh, commercially successful it took home $1.109 billion at the box office. That is insane. I know nowadays and, you know, post Marvel world that we live in, like a billion dollars doesn't hit like it used to hit, but like in 2012, that was an insane number. Uh, and it still is in my book. Uh, this movie is something truly special. I think they did everything right down to the pre-production and bringing on someone as esteemed as Sam Mendes to direct. Uh, You know, we were talking earlier that Martin Campbell was one of the best directors they had ever gotten before. There's a huge jump between Martin Campbell and Sam Mendes, uh, who is an Academy award winning director and best picture uh, producer. Uh, It's just, 
uh, that level of confidence and experience and knowledge behind the camera lends so much credence to what you're putting in front of the camera. Uh, it gets so much more out of your performances. Uh, you talk about the fact that the Bond girl in this movie is M. That leads to the fact that this structure is completely dissolvent of any past Bond structure we've come to know. That's what made it feel so fresh. And the movie even addresses it directly. One of my favorite scenes is when Naomi Harris is shaving Daniel Craig with a straight razor and subtly says the line, old dog, new tricks. That is the movie. That is this movie incarnate. It is showing us the audience that we can be reborn. We can do new things. If we try, you just have to try. I would even go so far as to say, that this is the first and maybe only Bond film so far to date that really has themes. Obviously, all films play with themes. I'm not saying that in a literal sense. Bond has had themes before, whether that's talk on contemporary uh, political issues of the time or whatever have you. But very distinctly, this movie has a consistent theme of resurrection and rebirth. It is mentioned over and over. The idea of re-identifying yourself so that you can re-identify yourself with the world and what you make of yourself in times of change. Uh, even down to our villain, Silva, played by Javier Bardem, he has to come to this these terms and recognition of how to rebuild himself after he feels that he's been betrayed uh, by his country and how he has to regrow himself as a cyber terrorist. Uh, I think that the script itself is so much deeper. Uh, just giving us actual artistic scenes that I wouldn't expect from a Bond film. Uh, there's a scene in this movie that actually makes me cry. No Bond film has ever made me cry, but almost every time I watch this, when he is chasing Silva through the streets of London, as they're on their way to Westminster and Silva's trying to assassinate M and M is reading the poem from Tennyson about we are who we are in these times of strife. And we can only, you know, forge ourselves from what we are meant to be. I cry like it, it, it is beautiful. It is a level above any other James Bond film has ever been able set to achieve a big part of that. Uh, Shane, as you were saying is due to the villain. Uh, you know, we say this, especially in relation to Marvel movies nowadays, a film is sometimes only as good as its villain. If you want someone that just wants to take over the world, cool, you know, whatever <laughs> we've James Bond has done that. <laughs> James Bond has done that dozens of times. Uh, but there's something distinctly different with a villain that sees himself as righteous and pure. I was betrayed by my country after giving my country everything. And I will make my country better by showing them their flaws and shoving it in their face. That's what Silva thinks he's doing. And he's psychotic. He's delusional. He is wrong. But because he is so resolute in his passions, we have to take him seriously as a viable threat. And it just elevates everything that Bond has to go through up into this purpose. Uh, we also have to discuss uh, the conclusion. Again, most Bond films like to have a big climactic ending. Casino Royale ends with the scene in Venice where a literal building sinks into the ocean. Um, it, it, or in Quantum of Solace, even though we don't like it so much, a gigantic hotel explodes in the middle of the desert. What happens in Skyfall? A giant they, orphanage explodes yeah. after it falls from the sky. No, is or that... they do Home, Home Alone. Alone. And I know it gets mean <laughs> a lot, uh, but we have to address it. But it's brilliant in how they do it. They put it together in yeah. such a practical way 
that you're like, yeah, that, that does make sense. They could do this as a last resort to save themselves and fend themselves off. And it creates this scene where it's like, you almost know they're going to fail, but you just, you, you can't stop hoping like there, he has to get out of this. I've long since argued that this almost should have been the conclusion to Craig. Now I haven't seen no time to die for all I know that could be the next best bond. And that could entirely change my opinion. But like, if this had just ended Daniel Craig's story and we had this trilogy in particular with the end caps of Casino Royale and Skyfall, that is a, in so many ways, a perfect trilogy. It may not mm-hmm. be full of perfect movies because Quantum is incredibly flawed, but in terms of a, a resounding story, especially with how things resolve with M, that is a story. That is a narrative arc that is unchallenged by most action films and action trilogies in today's uh, age in Hollywood. Uh, I love the treatment that it gives to Judy Dench uh, as M in her last film, her final hurrah. I think that she did a fantastic job in her role. I love even that again, saying that it could have been a trilogy and this could have been a conclusion because by the end of this movie, all the pieces are in play that like you said, Aaron, this could just be a prequel to the others because yeah. by the end of this movie, you know, what we have, we have money, Penny, we have Q, mm-hmm. we have M behind his other double leather door office like it is exactly where we start dr no and it is it is compelling that you can think of yeah this is just the prequel trilogy to the original timeline it's it's not but like it's fun to think of it that way and yeah it could be (laughs) uh but like ben wishaw as q is quirky and fun uh aaron i do agree with what you said at the time in 2012 it felt weird being like Oh, come on. He wanted to be captured. The Joker just did this in the Dark Knight. Loki just did this in the Avengers. But you have to keep in mind that, yeah, these films are made, produced fairly simultaneously. And once you take it in a vacuum, you take those films out of context, you just watch this film for what it is. What Silva does is brilliant. And you're like, of course he would do that. He's a maniacal cyber terrorist. He's one of the smartest people in the world. Of course he could pull that off. Yeah, the last, I thing have I wanna, a... <laughs> last thing I want to mention, I know I've gone on a rant. I'm sorry. Just, uh, the last thing I want to mention is I think it's exceptionally brilliant how this film can be so captivating and so interesting when we don't see the villain of this movie for an hour and 10 minutes. We do yeah, not no. see Silva, Javier Bardem, for a long time. They do not I, name him. He's not him. even mentioned yeah, for they, an hour and 10 They don't minutes. name him. They don't show him. You just know that someone is pulling the strings. It could be Santa. You don't know. <laughs> and... When they finally show him and they do this one shot take of him menacingly walking forward, giving this horrific story about changing the nature of rats to make them eat themselves. It's, it's gruesome. It's haunting. It's, it's perfect. And I, I wish that not even just James Bond or action films, more movies showcased villains in this nature you can show someone to be terrifying in the simplest way. He's literally talking about mice and rats, and he's one of the most horrifying villains I've ever seen in film. And it's, it's just brilliant. Yeah. That was going to be the next thing that I brought up is the fact that the, the movie restrains from showing you him. And then when it does like just what a powerful punch he has. Now this guy it's look, I, I'm, I know that the screenplay is part of the reason why he's my favorite Bond villain. One of my favorite performances of all time. Um, um yeah i like but god it's it's so incredible also now i want a harvier bardem as santa action movie there we go (laughs) 
um, I wanna, I'm glad yeah, I could that, put that in your mind. Too. We we briefly touched it. Ben Winshaw is just perfect in this movie, um, yep. and and he is uh, also Inspector. He's really great as Q. I'm very excited. Um, I hope that I hope that he becomes like the last Q. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm blanking Desmond, on his name. Uh, uh, Damon, Desmond Llewellyn. Yep. Yes, Desmond Llewellyn. I hope I hope Ben Winshaw just plays this role until he dies. Um, that would be a lot of fun for me. I'd be good with that. Um, um, I would like to add one thing. So mm-hmm. <laughs> my goal is to be wearing that midnight blue tux at my wedding in oh. May. So there you go. <laughs> there you that go. tux is so sharp. <laughs> it, the... Uh, <laughs> What see what feels like forever ago? You mentioned um, uh, how would they they, they kind of home alone the house, but like it's a great example of like how legitimate, how logistically could this one, two, you know, people fight off an entire army of people, and like you know, seeing the the skills that Bond has learned that he puts into practice, and Kincaid's just going old school somehow. Like it's it's a perfect. It, it's they could have easily just gone John Wick and be like he's gonna take a gun and he's gonna kill everybody yeah. and it's gonna be like and and look cool right it's, especially if they get somebody like David Leach to come on set and <laughs> um and and choreograph that but like no like this is a legitimate way you believe Bond could fight off this one man army like that um and then kind of my last two things is this is the first time I know you guys kind of mentioned it in Casino Royale um to me this is the first time that James Bond feels like it has stakes. Um, and then it has vulnerability and like, I don't ever feel in Casino Royale because they're not going to kill Daniel Craig, you know, when he's poisoned, like, uh, like they're not going to, if that would, if that would have happened three or four movies in maybe a little bit more stakes, but like, because it's the first one, I never once thought they're going to actually kill this guy or whatever. But I legitimately believe during Skyfall that anything could happen at any moment. And I thought he was going to die by the end of the movie. The first time I saw this. Well, you have him and like, I, you know, M M dying was a strong possibility. Wound up being being true. Um, some of the minor characters, you know, maybe something bad happening to Q was very like possible. Um, you know, like lots lots of things could have gone lots of different ways. And uh, yes, this to me, this was the first movie uh, with stakes, and uh, and which is odd because it also ignores almost everything that happens in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, and it's it's better for it because I feel like. This this movie just kind of helped Bond get back on his feet and establish, no, this is what we're going for, the, the direction of this franchise. Now let's kind of introduce Spectre in the next one. So um, this this really helped ground the franchise as a whole, which was yeah. which was great. So and now we have Spectre um, because we have the rights now. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> there wouldn't have been a Quantum if that was the case earlier. Yeah, it's very clear Thank that they wanted God. Quantum to be Spectre. Yep. Thank God they didn't have the rights. <laughs> um, let's see, because could you imagine if Quantum Asalus was our introduction to Spectre? Uh, all right, I'm all out of notes. Uh, Skyfall. Uh, are we good to, to talk about Spectre? Uh, other than to say Adele is amazing, and Skyfall is one of the most memorable James Bond themes ever. Listen to it all the time. It's awesome. Yeah, I'd agree with that, for sure. There we go. Um and uh, so, so that just means we have to do Spectre. Um, Heath, uh, I started with Shane last time. Do you like this, love it, hate it, dislike it, or think it's just okay? Uh, I feel very similar to Quantum on this one. It, it's the low side of it's okay. High side of disliked it. Okay. Uh, and Shane, what about you? I think it's okay. Okay. Um, I think I was with you guys after I saw it in the theaters. Uh, I think I liked this movie. Like, low side, I liked it. Um, 
I think uh, I think it's better than people give it credit for, and I think it's got some really Im- incredible sequences that really carry it through. Um, but this is far from the level of Casino Royale and Skyfall. But this is still like better than most Bond movies. Um, I would agree. Like, yeah. if you really think of the grand scheme of all the Bond movies, yeah. there's a lot of bad ones. Like, yeah, I well, have this in my top half. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take this over for Russia with Love or Goldfinger, but I would take no, this over yeah. Doctor No, um, and I would take this over Thunderball. Um, I personally wouldn't, but definitely like at least <laughs> half of at least half of Roger Moore's movies, and yeah. almost all of Pierce Bronson's. <laughs> yeah, three fourths um, of them, <laughs> to me at least. <laughs> but I well, yeah. Definitely die another day. That's that's bottom Ugh. bottom tier right there. Yeah, no, I just I I would put Goldeneye still above this, but yes. that'd be uh, yeah, definitely. absolutely. Um, so I, but I, thing- I I I really enjoy this movie. Actually, uh, it's not it's not incredible, but it's really good. Uh, it's it's sol- the the whole side plot with uh, whatever the actor's name is that plays Moriarty in Sherlock is. Totally oh. unnecessary, and isn't it? Um, C? It's Andrew something, right? Andrew Scott. Yeah, Andrew Scott. They call um, him C in the movie. Yeah. Look, it's it's a fine p- subplot. It's just a, a little bit added layer of something that was just too much for a movie that was trying to do a lot. You could cut out that character from the movie, and it wouldn't change it a bit. So, um, but like it's you know, and and we're talking about like we've been talking about like highlighting some of the set pieces and character work and things like that. Like I love. The, the the narrative that um, that Daniel Craig kind of goes through this experiencing um, says so I think Christoph Waltz was perfect casting I don't love the way they wrote his character too much um, I thought it was pretty dull and generic but I'm hoping that that gets remedied um, but even even seeing the way that Ray finds his M kind of settles into his role and kind of helps define what that means to him uh, but Gosh, that Day of the Dead sequence is so stinking good. And the ski resort sequence, I think, is really good. And all we talk about is the Day of the Dead one. But I think there's, like, really solid action throughout this movie. Um, trying to... trying Because, like I mentioned about Skyfall, it really helps ground it back and, and bring it back to the foundation of, oh, no, here's where we're taking this franchise. And I feel like Spectre does a good job of kind of nudging it into that direction. And I'm excited to see where we go now that all the cards are on the table. Um, you know, um, Spectre's not a shadowy organization anymore, or they are, but Bond's aware of them. Um, and he's aware of Blofeld's existence and, and all. It's like, I'm just, I think this was, this is a great bridge movie, um, to get from Skyfall back to the intended trajectory. Um, but a great bridge movie is not always a great movie. Yeah. I, cause like, if you think about, Skyfall feels like such a diversion from the other three Craig films and probably what No Time to Die is going to be. But you know, they just wrote that they all work together. Which that mm. that was when I was sitting in the theater and Blofeld, which worst kept secret since Khan from Star Trek in the Darkness, <laughs> was just like when he's like I've been pulling the strings the whole time. I'm like, you gotta be, oh my God. That, that's something that irrationally made me angry sitting in the movie. Cause I'm just like, this feels so forced. They were just like, oh my God, we finally have Spectre. So like they all worked for Spectre, but you could tell that it was done 
retroactively. And mm-hmm. that really bothered me. And yeah, they didn't. They had Christoph Waltz. He's won two Oscars for playing fantastic side characters, including an incredible villain. And it's just like they don't really do much with him. I do have to say, I love Mr. Hinks. I think he's a great, like, old school Bond henchman. And mm, Batista yep. is intimidating as hell. Too, oh, yeah. Until, he, until they dub him. He reminds me a lot of. He reminds me a lot of uh, the guy with the hat. Oh, uh, odd job, odd job. Yeah, yeah, he reminds me a lot of odd job. I mean, like he's got the physical, intimate stature of Jaws, but he reminds me a lot of odd job. The silent, menacing intimidation. Yeah. Yes. And that train yeah. sequence, though, it, that reminded me a lot of from Russia with Love when uh, Sean Connery has to fight. Uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name. It's um, the character's Red Grant, but it's uh, the guy from Jaws and the <laughs> Sting. Ah. Yeah, it's um, anyway Robert Shaw. Robert Shaw, yeah, yeah. Which that was. There's a lot of nods. Like obviously, mm-hmm. Skyfall was very purposefully trying to do tons of nods to the original, like John Connery era, and like they definitely had some of those nods in this one. Like that train sequence definitely was like, hey, homage to From Russia with Love, but like it was good. That's the thing. Why I fall in the middle is because there's things I love about this film. And there's things that make me angry about this film. And that's why I kind of fall in like, it's okay. Because I'm like, why couldn't the thing, like if there was just a little bit more in the loved category, this would have been so much, so great. And you had someone like Monica Bellucci showing up and everyone before the movie made such a big deal. I'm like, oh my God, they have an age appropriate Bond girl for him to like have a relationship. She looked amazing in that movie, by the way. Yes. And then you watch the film and she like, uh, why? Like it was what felt like a tacked on, like diversion subplot kind of thing and didn't really have much consequence. It was there to have a sexy woman on screen. And then you, nothing more. It was so disappointing. And then you pair Bond up with a 20 something. (laughs) Yeah. So my thing with Spectre is very similar to what Shane said. I, I, I feel like this film, much like Quantum, is a is a nothing film. Uh, it just too little happens with too many gaps in between. Um, the you talk about things that can be trimmed, Aaron. I entirely agree. There's a lot of this movie that could just straight be cut. This is yep. a long movie where sometimes nothing happens. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing. No lines of dialogue for minutes at a time, no transferring action, nothing. And it's just incredibly disappointing because I remember seeing this for the first time in theaters. That Day of the Dead sequence to open the film, I would say is the best pre-credit credit opening Bond sequence in the history of this franchise. I think that is some of the best action we've ever seen. And I remember going into the credits and I'm just like, oh my gosh, if the movie can keep up this momentum, this might be another Skyfall, like back-to-back best-ever movies. That'd be incredible. And just the rest of the movie flounders, and it doesn't keep that momentum going. There's too much stagnation where just nothing happens. It it tries to be so maniacal in its perception that, oh, yep, I'm Blofeld, and I'm back, and I was behind everything. I knew you made that peanut butter and jelly sandwich yesterday. Like it's (laughs) it's, It's just not believable. It's not. And I love that they brought Blofeld it back. It's believable that he would know that he made a peanut butter and jelly no, sandwich. No, he knows about the sandwich. He, he knows about the sandwich. <laughs> That's fine. But the, 
it just frustrates me because I love that they brought Blofeld back. I have no problem with this. Again, we've restarted the timeline. He's just now at 007. We've set all the pieces on the board. We have an M. We have a Q. We have Moneypenny. Like, all right, let's do Spectre. Let's do Blofeld. I'm fine with that. I even didn't mind Christoph Waltz, but like Shane said, like there's just nothing for them to do. The dialogue is bland. It's you could fall asleep to s- segments of this movie. Uh, it's and it just mm-hmm. frustrates me that they did try. I wanted them to say if they wanted to say like, oh yeah, Le Chiffre was part of it, or even like Mister Green in Quantum was part of it. I'd buy that. I don't buy for a second that Silva and Skyfall is part of this. It reminds me a lot mm-hmm. of in the original Conries, Goldfinger is a standalone. Aldrich yes. Goldfinger and the Goldfinger yeah. movie storyline Fort Knox is its own thing, has nothing to do with Spectre. But every other Connery movie has something to do with Spectre. That's how it should have been treated. To say that this former MI6 agent that is clearly in a league of his own, he says multiple times in the movie, I do whatever I want and like <laughs> I'll make my own missions is one of his own lines. I don't buy for a second that this guy takes orders from mr blofeld i doubt that he even knew he existed it just it just felt incredibly forced to try to pull this resonant like emotional tension from all these previous films into this one and by the end i'm just like i i was more upset that they blew up the mi6 headquarters that pierce brosnan used and (laughs) then then i was actually upset at what was happening in the story the only through line i could see would be uh for for silva that i could rationally see the way they set him up from skyfall would be if specter essentially just funded him or used him as like uh here's some information about james bond go make his life hell um and you know because he's close with m and you're really trying to get m like that would be the only thing like you're you're right. There's no, I don't I don't believe him as part of Spectre. I could see because he did say at one point like all to the highest bidder. I could see Silva just being like, oh, they paid me, I did it. But like when they're like, oh, I found Silva's DNA on this ring, I'm like, stop, stop. You did not find Silva's DNA on this ring that this guy was wearing in Mexico City. Just no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and no, I I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. It's kind of you could you can tell. Skyfall was a movie that Sam Mendes has thought of for years. Mm-hmm. And then he had established a reputation uh, and and the timing had just been right that he got the chance to make that movie. Um, you know, because relatively standalone, this is the kind of bond we're going for. They're big budget action, all that. And, but like, we want to stay faithful um, to what the franchise is like. And you can just tell that like, he had a good time with it. So why not come back for more? And not only that, but MGM backed up a dump truck to his house full of $100 bills. And why would you not say no to that? Like, you could just tell Skyfall was a passion project from Sam Mendes. And then he made another one because they wanted him to make another one. And it just doesn't feel inspired the way that Skyfall does. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's lacking that. And that's if you have Sam Mendes passionate about making this film, um, that changes this film entirely. But you can just kind of tell he's just like, I'm just really going to set this up for the next movie to hit a home run. And like whether they do or not is all dependent on how MGM and the director and the writers like all choose to handle that. But you could just kind of tell he's just like, just gonna, I'm just going to, I'm just going to lob. This is all I'm going to do. We just hit a home run with Skyfall. I'm back on the mound. We're just going to lob and hopefully set up for another home run. And you talk about the passion. Passion is important in any form of art, but especially film when it's all on screen and we can see these performances and we can see what the director is trying to go for. Uh, and it's not even just Sam. I, I agree. I, it, you could feel Sam is 
he just didn't care as much. And uh, Daniel did as well. Um, and he's even admitted it. I'm not even like yeah. bashing Daniel. He has said, like, I was not into it as much. Uh, he famously broke his leg while shooting this film. Uh, and they had a choice. Either Daniel can continue on with a broken leg, hating life, or they can shut down for nine months because he has to have surgery. He pushed on. So, like, that's going to affect you. You're already, you're in physical pain. You don't like, like the whole opening day of the dead sequence. That was one of the last sequences. He filmed that with a broken leg. That would suck like period. And it just, you can see that there's just, there's not as much energy as there was for Skyfall. And yeah. Well, and I mean, like you were talking about with the Craig too, you could tell like he's trying his, or he's doing his best here. I honestly don't see the relationship between him when he says, I would rather slip my wrist than do another. I don't see that really like mm-hmm. that. Cause that is an extreme and he's kind of phoning it in for this one, but this is a very bond listens as opposed to speaks film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, um, I don't see it. There is so much about Bond's last day of shooting and his goodbye to the post-production thing. I'm sure we've all seen on Twitter by now Yep. Um, that so much of that seems genuine at the same time, entirely disingenuous. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's quite the extreme that he thinks, uh, but I do think there is a, a solid argument for, um, uh, I think there's a solid argument for saying, you're right. You you can kind of see his lack of passion as well, but he's still trying. He's not he's not hate doing this movie. You know, he's not. He obviously still signed on for another one. You know, because a lot of money. Um, my last thing that I was gonna add is you can feel some of that Roger Moore era humor popping up in this movie, and it just didn't fit. And I'm just like, yeah. there's parts where I'm just like, this is not funny and they kept running with gags and stuff like that i'm just like please stop because that's one of the things that i felt like sunk james bond in the with the 80s films are like they were just so silly and goofy and just no but it's my last thoughts Uh, my last thought is uh again it's it's fun it's fine but it just it doesn't hit like i wish it would uh also i think leah sido was probably miscast uh, yeah, she just, she just doesn't seem to want to be there, um, and that's about it. And it, the, which scares me because she's in back this again. Next one too, but we'll see how that goes. Cool. All right. Well, there you have it. We've uh, we've talked uh, a lot about these four films, so now it's turn time for us to rank them. I think uh, Shane and Heath are probably going to have the same, um, and mine is just going to be one and two flopped. Uh, I obviously have Casino Royale, Skyfall, Spectre, then Quantum of Solace. Uh, my guess is that both of you have Skyfall, Casino Royale, Spectre, Quantum of Solace. That yep. is correct. All right. That was easy. Um. <laughs> if you couldn't tell from all of us talking about this, I feel like that was pretty, pretty easy choices there. I, I feel like, I feel like you, like your guys' view is the main consensus uh, as well. I think more, more people like Sky, but, I, but it is kind of neck and neck. So yeah. Um, uh, cool. So then uh, just where, I mean, you guys have seen all the Bond films I've seen a good chunk of them. Uh, where does Daniel Craig um, himself fall on your list of your favorite uh, bonds? If you want to go by favorite bond actor, if you want to go by just the favorite bond films, like, I don't know how you, how you want to choose to cry. To me, in terms of film and acting, he's tippy top. Um, Craig is my favorite bond by far. Um, and 
I, you don't have this if you don't have the Connery and Moore and Lazenby and Dalton and Bronson set up and all that. But Craig is just crushing it because even we just finished talking about Spectre and um, I kind of said he you can't quite feel that he's super into it, but he's still better than you know most of Connery's performances, right? Because Connery by the end was for sure out of it. So. Oh, he um, didn't even show up in Diamonds Are Forever. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty sure that so, was the like, person with the Sean Connery mask on. And look, everybody's more into this role than Lazenby was. But uh, anyway, like Craig is to me tippy top of uh, of the Bond uh, totem pole. Uh, Shane, what about For you? For me, I think at this point I'd put Daniel Craig at number two, and my number one is still Pierce Brosnan. Except like as Bond, I think that he mm-hmm. was able to capture like. He had some of that ruthless aggression of Sean Connery. He could quip like Roger Moore, except boy, did they saddle him with some trash. And I felt terrible for him because he was giving it his all. And if he Mm -hmm. had better films to work with, I think more people would be talking about him as the best James Bond. But he is for sure the culmination of, of all that was set up. Like he is Sean Connery, Roger Moore, George Lazenby, Timothy Dalton. Like, all of their character, he is so bondy yes. in in the icky ways and the suave ways. But yeah, it's him, and then I'd put Sean Connery and like Roger Moore. Well, I really like Timothy Dalton. I don't think he gets enough credit. There was a darker edge. He was the darker edge before Daniel Craig brought the darker edge, the Bond, and then George Lazenby yeah, yeah. was just like, which stings because like for Honor Majesty's Secret Service is a really impressive film. And he's mm-hmm. just like, this isn't an actor. Wasn't he like a model or something? He was, he was a, a mechanic yeah. and, uh, and then a model. Yeah. yeah. So like, why? But anyway, there's a really good uh, documentary on him and his role in bond on Hulu called becoming bond. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So those are my thoughts. What about you, Heath? Um, so I'll take this twofold real quick. One, I, I think that the ultimate James Bond performance is specifically Pierce Brosnan and specifically Goldeneye. I think that is as close we have gotten to the quote-unquote essential perfect Bond. That is everything Bond can and should be. Like you said, kind of a little bit of the icky stuff too, but if we're being honest, that's part of the character. Yeah. He's not a good guy. Um, uh in terms of ranking the movies with the actors in conjunction, uh, for the longest time, I was a stalwart in saying that Connery was the best. I think that that time has passed. I do think that Daniel Craig is the best James Bond. I think he's the best actor, performer. I think he has, uh, maybe not all of his movies have been fire, but he has two, he has the two, to me, I rank them one, two out of all 24 films. Like these are the two best films, Skyfall and Casino. Uh, he is the best James Bond, followed by Connery. After that, I go Pierce Brosnan. Again, he didn't have the best material. I agree. If he had some better movies to work with, we could think of him as higher, but unfortunately he doesn't. Uh, After that, I have Dalton. I actually think Dalton's really great. Uh, I think it is not his fault he had two movies. I, in my hot take, and I felt this way for years. I said this back in the 90s. Uh, Dalton is underappreciated for being ahead of his time. Yep. He was the dark, like you said, dark and gritty James Bond before that was a thing. Before Born Identity hit the scene, if Timothy Dalton came out at his young age that he was then and did those two movies now, 
they would be smash successes. People would love them, especially License to Kill. Yep. People would freaking love them. But because they came out in the late 80s when America is on its high and life is great and we don't want to see this, people didn't like it. Um, uh, but so Timothy Dalton, and then after that, George Lazenby actually loved Honor Majesty's Secret Service, but he just doesn't do much with it and he never came back, so it's really hard to judge him. And then I have Roger Moore in last. Uh, I know some people really love the Canby Moore era, and that's great. Uh, I used to love them a lot as a kid. They were my favorites, but as an adult, as the older I've grown, uh, I find them to be more and more intolerable. And I am mm. really misogynistic and a pain sometimes to suffer through. Uh, so I have more ranked last. I am very excited to get the Timothy Dalton ones during my walk through the franchise. Uh, the more ones, I'm, I'm not really, because I feel like a lot of these are also going to be one-note movies. There's a couple mores that I find enjoyable, but for the most part, the more movies are my lowest-ranked movies in mass. Even yeah. got outshined in one of them. With Man <laughs> so, with the Golden Gun. Christopher Lee for uh, James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you want to tell him? <laughs> well, Christopher Lee was Bond. Yeah, like that's who. So, for those Bond. who don't know, interesting fun fact: uh, Christopher Lee was a real life friend of Ian Fleming, the author of the James Bond novels. They met in the war together, and Ian Fleming based James Bond off of Christopher Lee in missions that he supposedly did or did not do, uh, and. He never got cast in that role, but as a favor to Ian Fleming, he later came back and said, I would love to do one of your movies, and I'll do them for you someday. I think actually by the time he did it, Fleming had passed, but uh, yeah, he ended yeah, up coming in passed, and, uh, as a villain for... Before the release of GoldenEye. Yeah. So, uh, cool. Um, we're going to do the B-plot here, um, and uh, what I thought would be cool, Billie Eilish was a really left-field pick for a Bond theme song. I personally love the theme song that she, that they wrote for it. Um, I think it's incredible. I think it was a really inspired pick. Um, I thought initially it was like, oh, they're just going with a young hip person. But I think that the track she produced is very Bond um, uh, and just incredible. Uh, I also forgot to Oscar mention this. in the waiting. I love the Sam Smith writing on the wall for, for Spectre. I, I really too. love that song. Um, some people don't. Um, yep. It's one of my favorites. It's Spectre's or Skyfall is still the best uh, Bond theme. Uh, Live and Let Die is probably number two. This would be yep. a pretty easy shoe in for number three for me. Um, so, um, anyway, I just I wanted to throw that out there. I love the Writing on the Wall um, song. Um, and it feels very Bond uh, in lots of things. So I thought what, what, what might be fun is let's let's have a conversation on who should do the theme song for whatever Bond film comes out after No Time to Die. Um, and so I said, let's each come up with three things. And all of us said Muse is is the right choice, especially because they wrote Supremacy for um, for Skyfall. And God, if like I like Skyfall more than I like Supremacy, but if Supremacy would have gone up against any other like choice of song, put Supremacy in Casino Royale. I don't really like the Casino Royale song that much. I know Shane said he really liked it. I don't. Put put somebody edit Supremacy over like the Casino Royale intro. Like we got a A plus movie right here. <laughs> uh, so we all said Muse. Uh, Muse is would be incredible. Uh, uh, but but we have a couple other options too. We just figured we throw that out of the way. Um, I'll, I'll I'll kick us off with another one. Um, there's a there's a UK based uh, rock band that I really like. Uh, they're nothing but thieves. Um, they're a little bit more like punk rock, um, so not quite that style. 
but like I think they do a lot they do some good like soft alternative um that I think I think if you told them hey make a Bond song I think they could come up with something really good and I like the idea of of uh, letting a UK artist um do the Bond films so nothing but thieves is not an enthusiastic pick but for sure a, a pick for me so um Heath, why don't you go? Yeah, uh, Muse, as we said, I have uh, two more. Uh, one being Nine Inch Nails or Trent Reznor, who has, in, over the past decade, uh, just crushed the movie world with his amazing scores, winning multiple Oscars. But uh, he was an amazing musician before that, just writing amazing songs. And I feel like as a part of Nine Inch Nails, something in the lines of like Hurt could be a yep. really somber, uh, impactful film. Uh, soundtrack uh track to go to james bond as well uh i would love to see a a perfect circle um i think a perfect circle has that kind of grandeur these days and uh james maynard keenan has some of the chops especially to put forth a track that could be explosive uh but hollow and resonant in its uh exploration of what james bond is doesn't doesn't hurt feel like the perfect song for no time to die or even specter like yeah like that song itself could literally be taken as a james bond scene you wouldn't even have to change anything maybe put in the johnny cash version instead but like it's perfect Perfect song for logan trailer i prefer the nine inch nail version yeah Yeah. i prefer the nine inch nails version but i do uh, do too slim margin um Shane, what are you? Uh, which one are you talk about? I really love your picks, by the way. I considered one of them so really hard. I'm going to do my funny one that I didn't actually write down because I almost put this down here. So I'm a huge Tom Jones fan, just in general, and <laughs> so I love Tom Jones. And Thunderball is such a classic, like male singer kind of song. And I was trying to think, who would that be today? And no joke. If everyone didn't know Seth MacFarlane just for jokes, he could actually sing. Wow. Could sing. And I thought that would be a cool kind of wow. like, because the first one would have been Michael Buble. Because like, honestly, he's the only one going around here just being like, hey, I could have sang with like Frank Sinatra era kind of thing. But like, I think if, yeah. if there wasn't the baggage of like the pick. family guy guy, I think he could have done that. And I think it would have been a quality song. Well, you can tell like his musical leanings is more of that like classy, yes. like tuxedo wearing. That's a great pick. I know you said it's a funny. That's great. Well, because most people are just going to think because like think about the movie Sing and his little mouse mm. who sings a Frank Sinatra song. And obviously he's putting on a voice, too. But like, I think it really could have worked. And it's got a great baritone voice yep. like he could oh, yeah. carry it. Um, I mean, even when he did the, like, we saw your boobs song at the Oscars or whatever, like yeah. even that was like still in a classical. Cause he can sing. <laughs> He's a talented. Yeah, he, he can sing. He genuinely sing. Um, I picked, I love Elton John too. And I'm even thinking like Elton John today with his like deeper soul, full more voice yeah. could really put out a quality one. And then yeah, before I jump into talking about my last pick, I love music and movies and there's so many Bond themes that I love. And I feel like Lady Gaga could do such a variety of them because like, obviously now like stuff she's done with Tony Bennett and stuff like that, she could have that more Skyfall kind of feel or Goldfinger kind of feel. I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of Tina Turner's Goldeneye on a side note. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And if the world is not enough, I don't think it's enough credit. I think that's a great. It's, it's a better, garbage. It's a good song for that, a yeah. Bad yeah. movie. <laughs> um, but I could also see her doing more of like the poppy kind of thing, like because View to a Kill straight trash. That movie Duran Duran killed, killed that. Idol- <laughs> that's one of the best things about the Timothy Daltons is those theme songs from Aha and Duran Duran are awesome. <laughs> like yeah. View to a Kill, like the whole dance into the fire, and just like like Lady Gaga from like her earlier kind of music that she made, I think could kill it doing a song like that too. So there you go. Those are my picks. Cool. Um, yeah. I almost put Elton John. I thought that would have been great, but um, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give one of my others and then Heath will hear your other one. Um, I, I thought Leslie Odom Jr. Would be perfect shoe in for like, especially since we're going for this like classical, big mobastic, you know, Sam Smith, Adele type, if we're going to keep rolling with that. And even this Billie Eilish is very subdued, very like operatic and, and classical in lots of ways. Um, I mean, why not? Like Leslie Odom Jr. Has a killer yeah. voice. Um, it might just be more of the same. It might, it might be very similar to the Sam Smith one, but, um, yeah, if that's where we're going, Leslie Odom Jr., for sure. Um, that's easy, easy pick for me. Keith, what about you? Oh, I already said mine. Uh, I might have just said them too quick back-to-back, but Nine Inch Nails, and then uh, I said earlier A Perfect Circle as well, I think would uh, do right. a great job. Oh, yeah, I just didn't think you mentioned A Perfect Circle, um, and I know you wanted to mention that. Yeah, uh, my last one would be recent Grammy Award-winning Her, uh, and Oscar-winning as well um she did the the theme for um judas and the black messiah Mm -hmm. which got her the oscar and her song won the best like soul album grammy or something um so as a quick side do we just i mean obviously who knows what's going to happen but do we just like lock in that billy's gonna win the oscar (laughs) the last two james bond films have won the oscar she won a grammy for it last year because it was released last year but the movie didn't come out last year so she couldn't win an oscar last year like I, she has I just, to be the front runner, right? Like, I just don't know what the competition is. Um, yeah, as of right now, she's the front runner. But like, I, I just don't know. I mean, there's there's one or two, or there's two original songs from Dear Evan Hansen that, like I said, I, I don't necessarily love the movies, but the original songs would count. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised at a nomination. I, from- I just feel that after Adele got it with Skyfall, and even Sam Smith, who some people didn't think it was as good, but Sam still got it with Writings on the Wall. And I agree with you, Aaron. I like it, but some people don't. Right. Like, I it it's very clear that the Whoever gets the James Bond theme at this point, that has become a prestige get, yep. and yep. that that has Oscar expectations yep. intertwined sure. with it now, probably for forever. I can't understand so. why Alicia Keys and Jack White didn't win it though. Who knows? That's weird. <laughs> oh, so maybe, bizarre. Maybe if, maybe if they would have made a good song. Anyway, if, if you want to hear um, her on Spotify or <laughs> iTunes or whatever, uh, ch- check out um, her song from Jesus of the Black Messiah is is called um, – oh, geez. What's that one called? Um, was it Hold On, I think? No, it wasn't. It was, uh, uh, something like I Hear Your Voice or something, I think. No. Or was that – I think it is Hold On. Okay, uh, and, then her, and then her song um, – uh, her single currently out is called um, – um, no, hold on is the single um, that recently came out. The one from uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is called "Fight for You." Um, those are two great songs. Again, they're not quite in the style of Bond, but I think her vocal arrangement and the way that she can use instruments. Same thing. Like, I don't know that I would have pegged Muse to be like fitting in a Bond theme, but then they come out with Supremacy, and you're like, 
All right, yeah. So, like, f- same thing. Uh, her would be my first pick for the next Bond movie. Um, but cool. we all picked Muse overall. Let nope. that be clear. But we all picked all Muse overall. All three of us yes. wanted Muse. <laughs> you don't even need to have Muse record a new song. Nope. Just use Supremacy. Yep. Yep. It's fine. Pop that right uh, in they won't win the Oscar because it's a previously released song, but who cares? <laughs> um, uh, so then we, we just got the spinoff to do, guys. So what's the one thing in pop culture that you really want to tell anybody, everybody to either check out or to stay away from? Uh, Heath, we'll start with you again. Uh, I have two things real quick. One uh, is a film that just came out that premiered at Cannes. Uh, earlier this summer, it's called Blue Bayou. Um, it's uh, showing uh, in select theaters, so it might not be near you. Uh, hopefully, it will be soon. Uh, but I think it's a very important piece. I think the the plot gets a little uh, stuck up in itself at times, but overall, I think it's uh, a great uh, story and one that needs to be told that has important so- social implications for things happening in the world today uh, around deportation of American citizens or lack of citizenship uh, due to a loophole in the immigration system. And uh, it's uh, important. Also, on a less heavy note, uh, I love me some Overwatch. Uh, and if anyone is a fan of Overwatch, the video game, the Overwatch League Grand Finals uh, just took place. Uh, you can go and watch that on YouTube to see who won the championship this year. Cool. And uh, Shane, what's that thing that you're going to plug? So from Bleecker Street, came out in limited theaters this weekend i got a screener for it i'm your man and this is a german film has a lot of great reviews coming out it's a sci-fi romance film about a scientist who is asked to spend three weeks with the robot and who's kind of made to be a companion for people and it's mostly a german cast except dan stevens plays the robot and it's heartfelt it's somber, it's deep and thematic, and I absolutely loved it. I'm a huge fan of sci-fi. It's If you love things like her and stuff like that, it's a little subtler, and there's no ScarJo, though. Um, but, you know... I don't, I don't like her, but... <laughs> well, <laughs> the film. a lot of people enjoyed listening to her voice, I guess. Um, but this, yeah. I think this was a really quality film. I loved it, and I hope some people show it some love. But, you know, Bleecker Street just pumps out a lot of just, like, quality movies. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm going to recommend a video game. Um, This is a Microsoft Studios game called 12 Minutes. Uh, It was premiered at E3. um, And basic setup is it's it's a point-and-click, almost like a Telltale game, but it's, like, from an overhead view. So it's more so, like, point and object, and you can, like, drag and drop and things like that. Um, It's a puzzle-solving game. Um, there is a, a voice casted by um, James McAvoy, Daisy Ridley, and Willem Dafoe. Um, that's pretty much your only characters you interact with, which is a really impressive voice cast already. Um, it, it's a really intriguing, complex story. Um, really great puzzles to solve. It's a Microsoft Studios game, so if you have Xbox Game Pass uh, for either PC or Xbox, you can get it for free with that. Or it's like $25 to buy. I, I don't know that I'm recommending $25 to buy because you'll beat it in like three hours um and if you want to like 100 percent complete it go through another run through and walk a, do a walkthrough on youtube like i did um so it, it doesn't necessarily have a ton of replay value uh but it is a good puzzle solving time with a really twisted complex um interesting story that had me at the edge of my seat the whole time um so 12 minutes um check that out on xbox especially if you have or xbox or pc especially if you have game pass but that's uh that's the thing i got to play so um that's a wrap 
Quick reminder, the Stiff Pop Writers Room is part of the Studio DNA Network. You can check out other great shows at studiodna.media or by searching for Studio DNA in your podcast player. If you want to write for stiffpop.com, join our crew. You can email us at writersroom at stiffpop.com. You can connect with me on Twitter uh, at Schweitcastle. DM me. Give me a follow while you do that. Why not? Uh, or via the Pop Twitter. Send that a DM. Uh, but that's the ways you can connect with me in the show. Um, uh, Shane, where do you want to send people? So I have my YouTube channel, The Wasteland Reviewer, and closing in on 500 subscribers after six years. So that's pretty exciting. So go give it a subscribe and watch my ridiculous amount of videos that I put on there. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. Now I have a TikTok, still trying to figure out what the hell I'm doing with it. Um, (laughs) But I contribute to the best ever challenges at Sif Pop. I do reviews for Sif Pop. Also write for... Scribe Magazine, I have the Wasteland Vintage Roadshow, which is going to be focusing mostly on Martin Scorsese movies over the next, like, months. And um, also a Scare Magazine and MovieHole.com, so, .net. So many things. I don't know. There you go. Nice. And Heath, where's the, where do you want to send people to? Yeah, you can uh, find me on Letterboxd, uh, Heath Lynch on Letterboxd. I, uh watch anywhere between 10 and 15 movies every single week i write 500 to 2000 word reviews for every movie i watch uh you can also find me at sif pop uh where i contribute weekly to the best ever challenges uh and try to do one or sometimes even two uh movie full reviews a month and i might be doing again we'll see uh some more articles in the future cool well hey guys it's been a pleasure having you on really appreciate having you on to talk about lots of stuff thanks for having us thank you yeah absolutely uh we'll have to do it again uh by the way i i guess i didn't ask before but my plan is to invite you guys to do a mini review of no time to die after releasing i know heath has the article yes. uh, but after after yes, no time absolutely. to die comes out since we've heard the idea of doing um uh of doing we, you've heard the rest of talk you've heard us talk about the rest of the craig bond films so why not the last one um, so we'll have that out hopefully opening week. I'm down. Uh, and this podcast is I, I still will be there. not as long as No Time to Die. Yeah. <laughs> Buckle up. People. All right. Well, uh, we will see you guys back for the mini review next week. I have Chantal on with uh, – we're talking about Scooby-Doo and the Som- Cyber Chase and Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Oh, my God. Nostalgia <laughs> uh, so should be a good time. Make sure you come back next week for that and in a couple weeks for the mini review with these guys. Until then, I yeah, hope you have a good week, and, and we'll see you back around next time.